The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens if the year is 1987? And the next new hot studio pitch is Peter Pan meets the Goonies, but with vampires. How is it that this child-oriented and family-friendly pitch would morph instead into one of the most genre-redefining films? All by asking one single question of its own. Could a film go where no film had yet gone before and make the vampire mass-culturally sexy? Well, let's find out. Because today we are sinking our teeth into Joel Schumacher's Lost Boys. So lie back and let go as we drink in this love letter of a film to Reagan-era counterculturalism. Brought to you by Erotic Subtext, Erotic Overtext, The Name Michael, The Allure of the Outsider, Murder Capitals of the World, Eye Erections, and All the Damned Vampires. And of course, our safe words today are Trademark New England. Trademark New England, yes, because we are so far from Trademark New England at this point. Anything to add, Benji? Not a goddamn thing ever. Never. No. I was not aroused by that saxophone player. What are you talking about? Moving on. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. What? Oh, hi, Mark. Hey, London! Hey, Benji. Not my name. Moving on. Whatever. It is, though. God damn it. It is. It's Ben. My name is Ben. I don't care. <laughs> All right, so today we watched The Lost Boys. Joel Schumacher's 1987 glorious movie, The Lost Boys. Yes. God damn, I had not seen this in so long. I think I, like many people, saw this in my youth on videotape. This was one of the best-selling VHS tapes of all time, I believe. I do think that that is indeed strangely true. Because this was a special film to a lot of people. It is... I think for a lot of people, their first exposure to sexy vampires. Yes. Well, it would be a lot of people's first exposure to sexy vampires because it is, in a way, the first cinematic representation of a particular type of sex appeal in vampires. Mm -hmm. There are some people who do find something a little sexy about Bella Lugosi and Dracula, and we won't take that away from we will not Bella Lugosi and Dracula. Bella. You do so not do it's that. It's its own sex appeal. Yeah. You also have The Hunger in 1983 as a very sexual representation of vampires, oh, okay. but in a very different way. Mm. I guess you get a little bit of John Bedham's, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Dracula in 1979, and then, of course, Werner Herzog redoing Nisratu in 1979 are going to be the contemporary counterpoints yeah. to Lost Boys. It is really difficult to top the sexiness of a very pale Klaus Kinski. I mean... Yeah, no, that's true. Ooh. But... Anne Rice is going to be the one who pop culturally is attributed to sexifying the vampire, to turning them into this sexual creature of the night. But the movie adaptations of her novels had not yet 
manifested to become a physical celluloid thing. That is true. Like, Interview with the Vampire would not come out until, I think, 1994. That one is, like, the one good adaptation of, of Ayn Rand's Vampire. <laughs> oh, How boy. amazing would it be if Vampires by Ayn Rand. Books about vampire interviews. Oh, boy. Yeah, good Lord. I guess there is a certain kind of capitalist classism that goes on within the hierarchical culture of vampirism. So perhaps Ayn Rand's novels were about vampires all along. I, hot take. I know. <laughs> it is a hot take. I don't know that it's a new take, but I think many people would agree with you on that. No, but maybe what we need to do is we need to re we need an adaptation of Ayn Rand's novels with vampires because this in itself is an adaptation of sorts of Peter Pan with vampires. Yes, that was what fascinated me, learned about the creation of this, that the original version of this script was, as described in uh, interviews, Goonies Goes Vampires, or something along those lines, because the name The Lost Boys comes from The Lost Boys from the Peter Pan stories, the kids who lived in Never Netherland, could fly, never, never got older, and the original screenplay had all of our vampires as young children, as literal lost boys. And it was not until that delightful, wonderful, beautiful man, Joel Schumacher, came along that it was decided, you know what? We got to age these kids up because these vampires, they're going to be sexy vampires. Yeah, they are. So I have a little bit of kind of more detailed production set up here about the things that we just said. Sure. Say the things I just said, but do them more. Yeah. Go for it. The original screenplay to this is going to be written by Jan Fisher and James Jeremias, and it will come in conjunction with Richard Donner. Richard Donner is going to have just directed The Goonies, 1985 movie The Goonies. Mm Mm-hmm. He was initially slated to direct this movie as well. So they were going to do Goonies all over again, and they were going to do it with vampires, <laughs> and they were going to base it off of Peter Pan. That's the easiest pitch ever, isn't it? Like, it's like the Goonies, but with vampires. Sold, Richard! You got another hit in your hands. Let's do this thing. <laughs> but also Peter Pan, yeah. And so it started out as this thought experiment of, oh, well, we have this idea of this group of boys that never age and are seemingly immortal and stuck within this hedonistic mindset. And that seemed very ripe as a potential vampire interpretation story. So they're like, yeah, let's do it. In interviews, Richard Donner has mentioned that notoriously and self-admittedly, if he's attached to a project for too long, then that's probably not going to happen. Because if he has to wait for it, he gets restless and he gets distracted and he goes and he does something else. He was originally going to be the director for Wild Wild West, and that went on for too long, so he made Maverick. And yeah, he's like, I got to bounce. Saving know? us to get the Wild Wild West that we know and love today. Curious. Yeah, Richard Donner is going to bounce off of this project as well to go do Lethal Weapon. You know. Worked out okay for him, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and as he was exiting, they were like, well, we need a different director. And his wife, who's a producer, she had worked with Joel Schumacher before on one of his first films. And so she was the one who recommended Joel Schumacher come in and step in and take over this production. And so they bring in Joel Schumacher to a meeting with the head of the studio. And I kind of love this, and I especially loved hearing Joel Schumacher talk about it because he was retroactively looking back at this time where he walks into this studio meeting. He's only done three films, 
And in his own words, he was like, I am now a little embarrassed and ashamed to say that I was a condescending little bitch in that meeting because <laughs> I read this script. Oh, and then I just looked up at the head of the studio and I just derisively say, what, is this some sort of little kid's vampire story? <laughs> and I was not into it, and I made that abundantly clear. Yeah, so he did not like it. He thought it was cheesy. All of the characters, they were indeed children. The Frog Brothers were these eight-year-old Boy Scouts. And Good Lord. all of these characters are named much more similarly to the Peter Pan characters. So we get David, I think his name in the script or the very original script is Peter. And then we have uh, the boys, Michael and John, I think is the other sure. kid's Why name not? in yeah. Peter Pan. So you've got in Peter Pan, the original little family, Wendy, Michael, and I think John, that gets sucked into this Neverland. So the mother's name in the script was Wendy. And then you had the boys, Michael and John. Michael's going to retain his name as Michael, mm. but John is going to get renamed to Sam. And they're going to get age inverse because Michael is the littlest brother in Peter Pan. Ah. So I don't know. Michael, you say, is his name. Michael. Michael. This guy's name is Michael. You know, I mean, it's hard because it wasn't said that much in the movie, but I think it was Michael. We'll see if the movie makes that any more clear. So the name Michael is going to be said in this movie over 100 <laughs> times. I tried to count. I got 118 was my count that I came away with. I need but to I might start doing some. super cuts of stuff like that, of every time someone says a character's name, we've just heard way too many damn times. Yeah, no, Michael is, it's going to be a name that's repeated over and over again. And we're also going to get other little overlays left over from Peter Pan. So as we go through, we'll sort of point out where the Peter Pan of this all remained. Of course, the Lost Boys being the biggest reference right. there that remained as the title of the movie. Other things that we will be talking about, you watched a whole bunch of supplemental media for this right yeah i watched the two sequels both of which have zero percent on rotten tomatoes so i kind of thought oh this is round two of the fuck my life film festival huh and yeah, that was half true yeah so you did the fuck my life film fest and the director's commentary and a bunch of supplemental material i did yeah watch all the supplemental materials that are on the blu-ray of this thing which is an awesome blu-ray and listen to the commentary just always fun to listen to him, and he had some just delightful insights to give for this movie. Yeah, he's super wonderful. I love Joel Schumacher, as came up on the 8mm episode. And then in a little bit of an inverse role here than we generally do it, you watched a bunch of stuff, and I read a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> I did read the second original screenplay. So once Joel Schumacher takes over and is like, okay, now that Richard Donner is just moved to producer. So he did stay on as producer of this film. Mm -hmm. But he's like, okay, well, Donner's not looking. We're going to age this up and we're going to make it sexy. And you're like, yeah, you are, Joel. So they bring in Jeffrey Bohm to rework the script and age it up. There's also going to be a lot of improv on set. But the second original screenplay is still very, very similar to the final product in some ways, but there's more of it. Mm. There's a lot more scenes. So I will bring up some of the things that are in the screenplay. And then I also read the official novelization of this film that was written by Craig Shaw Gardner. For those of you who aren't as into the worlds of official movie novelizations, <laughs> Craig Shaw Gardner is awesome at movie novelizations. Yeah, I'm looking at your list of the movies he's done, and I didn't realize I actually read one of these. Yeah, I read the Batman novelization when I was in 
a middle school or something. I wasn't too familiar with you know movie novelizations yet. And I remember reading that and thinking to myself, wow, the, this goes into their heads a lot more. Like, you're getting Batman psychology in this thing. This is really wild. Yeah, he's really good at fleshing out stuff that might be not fully explained in the film. So the ones that he did that he's most well known for is he's going to do the novelization for both Batman and Batman Returns, the 89 and uh, 92 film. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to do the Back to the Future 2 and 3 novels. And then he also wrote a novelization to Leprechauns. And why I bring this up is because most people, when they see that, think that it's part of the Leprechaun horror franchise. And it is not. It is a Hallmark made-for-TV movie. Oh, good God, that thing. Oh! Yeah. You're familiar with oh, this? I va- oh, I vaguely remember that. I think it was, like, yeah, Hallmark, and I think NBC had it on at one point. Yep, but... it was an NBC thing. Yeah. Has it Randy was... Quaid, Kieran Culkin, Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> it's a trip. Yeah, NBC was making some crap made-for-TV movies back then. Solid. He also has some of his own original stuff. He's got kind of a fantasy novel series that reads very similar to Terry Pratchett. All right. His prose is really fun, and the backstory behind him writing the novelization is that Joel Schumacher sought him out to write it, and he did receive the full script, as is common with official novelizations. He received whatever production details they had at the time, talked to some of the actors. So what he has in this novelization is as close to the canonical idea of those working on the film at the time, Mm -hmm. but there is going to be a lot more of it. So I will also, as we go through, be pointing out and filling in some gaps that are left in the movie as we go through it. All right. So what is the best thing about this film? Best thing about this film is just how goddamn sexy it is. It's strange to say, (laughs) I know, that a movie is sexy when it's not explicitly erotica or what have you, but damn, there is not a frame of this thing that is not beautiful and just so wonderful on the eyes, so delightful to take in. Joel Schumacher, God, he can make things sexy that never would have been sexy. He just had a talent for that. Yeah, I do love Joel Schumacher's embrace of, like, the vampires are sexy. We need to make this sexy. Yeah. At a time where vampires weren't really all that sexy. They weren't known for that. Like, now that is, like, all that vampires are known for. They are not creatures of fright and horror. They are sexy, glorious, sometimes glittering slash sparkling creatures. Yeah. So my best thing does overlap with that because yeah Joel Schumacher is all about that texture that's just the most wonderful thing about Joel Schumacher films is just the tone this incredibly weird bright tone that is happening in this movie but in conjunction with that this film is very much a film about the other and outsiders and Joel Schumacher even has a direct quote about that where he says this movie is in a way about the fear we have of the other those who live outside the mainstream And you can feel that in this movie, that there is this celebration of otherness, of counterculturism. And this movie is coming out in 1987. This is a Reagan-era film, and it is a celebration of counterculture during the Reagan era. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of really cool readings of this film for such a zany, weird 
comedy horror film. There's a breadth of really great analysis of, of this film in terms of how it's dealing with the idea of family during the Reagan era and how it's dealing with the idea of sexuality and also counterculturism. It kind of is somehow working as a metaphor on all fronts simultaneously. And I really do love that about this film. So, of course, I will be lecturing on that as we go along. Too. I've heard there's a subtle homoeroticism to this film. Yeah, you know, I mean, just about as much as Top Gun, one might say. Yeah, no, this film is iconically homoerotic and it's amazing. You know what was crazy? The whole time of the commentary, interviews, everything, Joel Schumacher never once brings that up. Which, I don't know, maybe to him bringing up the homoeroticism in this film is like saying we were rolling film in this scene. It's just kind of self-evident that that's what's going on. Yeah, I couldn't find the official source again, but I do remember at one point somebody kind of directly asking him the question about the homoeroticism in this and whether or not it was intentional. And in his little Joel Schumacher way, he was like, well, yeah, I'm gay now and I was gay then. (laughs) 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 I was like, yeah, what do you want from me? Yes, Joel. Uh, you can tell so, it like it is, Joel. Yeah, God, I fucking love him. you sweet, so beautiful man. So, yes, the homoeroticism is amazing. What's the worst thing about this film? There's this part where Sam is in the comic book store, and he picks up a comic book, and he bends the spine. What the oh. fuck? <laughs> Cardinal Sin, huh? Come on, kid. I do remember there was that meme going around for a little while that I did kind of weirdly love, where there's this, this really conventionally attractive sexualized woman in a bikini lying on top of a bunch of comic books and then variations on just this idea of like get off the comics you're ruining them <laughs> like, the, you're gonna bend the spines yep. and like all of this stuff so yeah pretty much <laughs> fun times so oh. that's, that's the one thing that you would change is just don't bend that comic So the worst thing for me is actually very similar to Hocus Pocus, and it's that the vampires do not prevail. Mm, Yeah. But at the same time, I'm willing to extend the fact that they don't, because it is, and we will get to the sequels and we will get to Joel Schumacher's headcanon, but... Since David didn't actually die, like, it's kind of fine. But at the same time, since there is such the celebration of the outsider and the seduction and allure of the counterculture... I did want the counterculture to prevail. I can understand that. And in that. some ways it does, but in other ways it doesn't. So we'll talk about that as I well. I think with this movie, it's a lesser factor than it was with Hocus Pocus. Because in this movie, more or less all the characters are very likable in The Lost Boys. In Hocus Pocus, it was the witches and nothing. The witches and just these other bland characters no one gives a damn about. Like I said, no one watches Hocus Pocus and says, Ooh, I hope that Max gets the girl at the end. Yeah, but I was really hoping that David would get the boy in the end, right? And he doesn't. So I think that's part of the thing, too, is (laughs) the homoeroticism in this, as we mentioned, is very heavy. It's very palpable. And... As a gay kid watching this film when I was younger, right? Like, there was sure, something yeah. really amazing about that. Mm-hmm. But then there's also something really sad when, like, that didn't actually get to kind of come to fruition or a culmination. Because it's like, ah, oh, there's this amazing tension. But there is something a little sad to me about the ending in terms of the aborted metaphor that's happening. I get you. But yeah. it's still a really super fun film. So I'm, I'm not too broken up about <laughs> it. But if I had to pick something to change, that is what I would pick. Yeah, that's that's so. fair. So we should go ahead and get into it. And I think you need to cry, little sister. Oh, 
And this is our opening song, and we open in flight. We'll be in flight many times throughout this movie, flying over the Pacific Ocean, going right on into beautiful Santa Cruz. I'm sorry, did I say Santa Cruz? I meant uh, Santa Carla, California. Yeah, that iconic carnival. Santa Cruz shoreline. So there is one thing that is cut from the script, really? and that is the vampire lore that vampires cannot cross rushing water. Oh, okay. This very specific subset of vampire ideology that they can't cross rushing water. And yet this is set in this coastal town surrounded by the ocean, right? So we have this insular vampire community that is caged in by the water, and yet they still have these flight shots over it, which is already establishing how punk these motherfucking vampires are, that they are flirting with that line, that they're just going to fly over the ocean. It works, and they fly towards the boardwalk of Santa Cruz, where we see those beautiful Ferris wheels, roller coasters going, the carnival rides, and these are some kind of special rides. I mean, the Santa Cruz boardwalk is, I mean, this is a famous place, right? This has been around for decades, if not a full century by now. It is. It has been over a century since this boardwalk little adventure park paradise was constructed. <laughs> the two big rides that are going to get showcased here, both in the just general landscape shot, but then also in specific scenes, are that roller coaster, mm-hmm. the Giant Dipper. It is a historic wooden roller coaster, so it is a wooden roller coaster. Yeah, I worked on a wooden ro- wooden roller coasters in high school at Six Flags, so that's that's near to my heart. Wooden roller coasters, those are awesome. Uh, the sound, that clacking yes. sound, as wooden roller coasters move, is just so anxiety-inducing to me. And this was built in 1924. So it is a very old, it's one of the few remaining quote-unquote golden era wooden roller coasters that are actually still operational. Mm. And then we're also going to get the Loof Carousel. Is it by the Loof Balloons? Not quite Loof Balloons. It's spelled differently. It's L-O-O-F-F. So there's not 99 of them. Okay, that's fine. No, there's just the one. And it was built in 1911. And I really like just the ridiculousness with which it's described on the Santa Cruz tourism website, really? which is the hand-carved merry-go-round has been turning children's seaside dreams into golden memories since 1911. <laughs> You're like, well, <laughs> that is <laughs> okay. a egregiously whimsical way mm, to describe Yeah, just a really old carousel, well, the but fine. Golden dreams, golden memories, they're happening on this carousel because who do we meet? Baby Kiefer Sutherland and baby Alex Winter are here. Yeah. I was stunned tiny, to tiny learn voice. Kiefer Sutherland was fucking 18 years old when he did this movie. He, uh, yeah, he's very young. He had done Stand By Me and he had done some bit moment of a role in a Sean Penn film. And I was just like, I forgot that Alex Winter was in this too. So when he shows up, I'm like, what? Wow, it's a little baby Bill. <laughs> this is two years before Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So yeah, Alex was very new to the scene. Yeah. In fact, all of these children actors are going to be very, very new, fresh faces. So the initial marketing and promo materials for this had a hard time. They didn't quite know what to do yeah, because there was no quote-unquote star power among the youth. Mm-hmm. 
that would change. Kiefer Sutherland sure. will become known. Alex Winter will become known. The two Corys will definitely become known. But Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, this is the first movie that they will appear in together before studios decide we need to just stuff these two into a dozen <laughs> Put or so them movies. in the things again and again. And make them teen bop idols or whatever. <laughs> Corey Feldman had been in The Goonies, which is where I guess he got the read for this one was Richard Donner actually had him come in Mm -hmm. and read for Joel Schumacher for this part of Frog. But (laughs) my favorite story about Edgar Frog at the time was that Joel Schumacher looks at him and he's like, all right, that was was an all right read, but you need to like butch up. And he just hands him this stack of Sylvester Stallone movies. <laughs> He's like, I want you to watch all of these, and I want you to hey, be Hey, we're this. the Frog Brothers. No, no, no. Do it Do it the other way. Uh, yeah, we're the Frog Brothers. Yeah, and they did it, and it <laughs> yeah. was great. Yeah, so we'll, we'll bring him back up, I guess, when we get to the frogs. Yeah. But right now, we are on the carousel. These vampires are causing... Well, they, we don't know. We don't know who they, these guys are yet. They're just some guys, and they're causing shit in this carousel, man. They are. And the original script had the scene a little bit longer, and then the original novelization had an even longer setup. And so what we get from the novel slash script is that these boys, this gang of lost boys, is actually here to have a little bit of a showdown with the rival gang. And the rival gang are these, these bros that everybody else refers to as the surf Nazis. Oh, okay. The surf Nazis, I don't think they call themselves the surf Nazis. I think this is more a moniker that's thrust upon them by the rest of the beach-going population because these surf Nazis, they rule the beach and they don't necessarily let everybody surf where they want to surf because they're like, nah, this is our turf. It's kind of like a Seinfeld soup Nazi thing, but like beach (laughs) version. So we've got this idea, yeah, that there is this rival gang and they are going to pop up a lot throughout the script. And they're mostly going to get deleted except for the one time where they get eaten at a bonfire. Yeah, and you don't even know that they're surf Nazis except for the fact that in the closing credits it says surf Nazi one, two, three, four, five. Like, oh, those, those guys were called surf Nazis? Okay, cool. Yeah, and these surf Nazis and the Lost Boys are going to tango on this carousel, and then this security guard is going to show up. And this security guard has had it out for them for a very long time. He hates both of these gangs. (laughs) So they're each other's arch nemesis, but then like the security guard has dictated that both of these groups of boys is his personal arch nemesis. And he's a little salty about the fact that he keeps failing the police exam. So he's not actually a cop. He's a security guard for the carousel. Oh, man. If only we had backstory about this cop in the movie, that would just enrich the experience. I did actually find that it enriched the experience because he keeps bitching about how he really wants a gun so that he could kind of like mow down the trash that keeps coming in to his area. And this contextualizes a little bit why... How in the next scene, when he's leaving the park to get to his car, he becomes the Lost Boy's first victim because he's an asshole. Ah, okay. Well, see, I don't care about this guy's backstory because, spoiler alert for the next two minutes, he's going to die. So I don't really care about that. And I think really something I, I picked up on looking at the deleted scenes for this movie versus what we end up with in the sequels 
is that this movie's editing worked so hard to keep the energy going and remove details that were not serving the main thrust of the film. And yeah, getting the backstory and a security guard who's going to get offed in the first two minutes of the film, that's not details we need. It isn't necessarily in the film, but what I found really rewarding about reading the script and the novelization is that then sitting back and kind of knowing the... So it's it's like the sujet versus the fabula, right? Knowing the plot of the movie is one thing, mm-hmm. and then knowing the overall tale and structure and story that exists within this entire space that you carve the movie's plot out of mm-hmm. becomes a really fun okay, exercise, sure, which is sure. why I'm going to keep kind of pointing these out, because yeah. I love the stuff that I now know about the worlds or the <laughs> fabula of this particular movie after reading all of the other canonical parts of the novelization. London does air quotes when she says canonical. I do. I mean, it's because canon is a different debate that we will not have right now. (laughs) Like just the concept of canon. Yes. Now, after the security guard with this amazing backstory has kicked these kids out, the boardwalk closes down, security guard heads back to his car, and we have a lot of overhead flying shots, point of view flying shots. And we see that a lot in this movie. Because as Joel Schumacher has told us, the budget to this thing was not really what it should have been if it was going to be a movie about vampires who can fly. So we don't have many special effects shots throughout this movie. There are two green screen shots in the whole thing that last for a grand total of 2.2 seconds. So for a lot of it, we just have these overhead shots. And really, I think the movie is better for that because it's a little mysterious what is going on at first. I mean, it's pretty obvious to anyone who knows this movie what's going to happen, but just that lingering point of view overhead flying shot, and then the security guard just is ripped up into the air with so much force that he rips off the door to his car in the process, I think works a lot better than if we had a bunch of shots of Kiefer and the boys hovering in the air Laughing and getting like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would have aged well. No, <laughs> no. So guy gets snatched up, and we just see the flying vampire POV with all of these weird garbled sound mixing going on in the background. It's a very gross, effective sound that happens during vamp vision. According to the writing materials, his body gets dumped on the beach. And it's nothing but skin and bone and not a drop of blood remains, Mm. which is kind of a fun little image. But we don't really get the address of where or what happens to these bodies in Santa... I keep wanting to say Santa Clara, but Santa Carla. Yes, Santa Clara is an actual town around San Francisco. Santa Carla is... Not a real town. I'm... Yeah, they just go missing. Yeah, they're and all missing. And I do missing. like yeah. them just going missing. There's something kind of mysterious about that. So we don't know where they put the bodies, really, but they go somewhere. We do get the daytime. Oh, thank God. Suddenly in Santa Carla. Daytime. And yes, a new family is moving into town with the U-Haul trailer behind them. And we meet our lovable family. The mother, Lucy, played by Diane Wiest, who had just won a goddamn Oscar right before doing this film. Joel Schumacher was constantly shocked that she said yes to a vampire movie (laughs) after she had just won an Academy Award for Hannah and Her Sisters, that Woody Allen film from the mid-80s. And then Michael, I am pretty sure that's his name, Michael, played by Jason Patrick, and young Sam, played by one of the Corys, Corey Haim, and they're driving into lovely Santa Carla, California, 
there's a great moment there where they see this beautiful Welcome to Santa Carla sign, and as they drive by it, on the back of it, it says, The Murder Capital of the World. And it's strange that we call this place Santa Carla, because this is all filmed in Santa Cruz. Now, I would imagine any town would not want to be called the murder capital of the world, and yet I think there's a reason that Santa Cruz really did not want to be called the murder capital of the world. Why do we think that is? Yeah, so initially this is shot in Santa Cruz in part because Joel Schumacher fell in love with the Santa Cruz boardwalk and the roller coaster and had remarked, if I was a teenage vampire, this is where I would want to hang out. Uh, Like, we got to shoot it here. Mm -hmm. Santa Cruz was reluctant to let them shoot because they're like, yeah, I don't really want the bad press. And they especially didn't want it after the movie Sudden Impact had been shot there. And it also portrayed Santa Cruz in this kind of dangerous, gritty light. The only thing that really comes out of Sudden Impact is the quote, go ahead, make my day. Oh, that's, the, that's where that comes from. I thought that was the first Diddy Harry movie, but eh. Yeah, no, that's Sudden Impact. It's I the haven't. only thing that comes out of Sudden Impact, really. That and like Santa Cruz being reluctant to let people film in Santa Cruz. And then we have this movie coming in that's like, yeah, we really want to set it as the location of counterculture and the murder capital of the world. And why they were trying to get away from this title is because Santa Cruz had actually been dubbed the murder capital of the world for specific reasons. So Reasons, you say? I'm going to take you on a little story of Santa Cruz, the bright shining moment in history where Santa Cruz became the quote unquote murder capital Damned of the world. And it's fame. Santa Cruz moving on the way up. Yeah, and that's going to happen in 1970. On a very particular night in 1970, a mansion is going to be set ablaze, and people are going to see this mansion on fire, and firemen are going to go up and go to put it out, Mm -hmm. and they go around the back, and they come across this mansion pool. And this mansion pool is full of bodies. Oh, hey. And they're like, the fuck? I'm glad they found the bodies, because otherwise then it's just known as the blazing mansion capital of the world. We need some bodies yeah. to get that murder capital No, I mean, this thing is going. just going to be like the start. This is just oh. ground zero. Oh, that's just, this is the opening act, folks. Pool full of bodies. Capital. This is just, that's preamble. So this pool full of bodies, this is also just like a really terribly crass way in which to talk about these horrible crimes, but we're going to keep that uh, zany tone and we're just going to talk about these really irrelevant. I would never want us to get crass, London. That's just not the kind of podcast that we do here. There's this pool full of bodies. Turns out a man named John Lindley Frazier, who was a fairly eccentric dude who lived in a cabin, kind of Ted Kaczynski style, Mm. was very angry and upset about people that he thought were polluting the environment in some capacity or were these terrible capitalists or like whatever, what have you. And he was sort of mass killing and targeting people that he deemed to be part of the problem. While he's on trial, a dude named Herbert Mullen is going to independently become Santa Cruz's first captured serial killer at the time because there's going to be multiples. So Herbert Mullen is going to start hearing voices. And these voices are going to tell him that they require human sacrifices or else more earthquakes are going to happen. Him being the good citizen that he was, was like, well, we got to prevent the earthquakes because earthquakes in California can be really detrimental. So he starts collecting these human sacrifices 
And for a little while, it's going to be confusing that it's a serial killer because none of his victims are going to have that much in common. He's going to kill a male hitchhiker. He's going to kill female college students. He's going to kill a priest. He's going to kill his neighbor. So it, it took him a while to establish any kind of pattern because there wasn't one. It really takes him shooting his neighbor in broad daylight in front of a whole bunch of witnesses for them to be like, oh, let's apprehend you and take you Aha, in. And then, you made one fatal mistake. Killing your neighbor in broad daylight in front of a crowd. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the stealthiest thing to do. But he was just, you know, trying to keep the earthquake gods at bay or something. I'm not sure. So meanwhile, one of his bodies that he's going to dump is going to be in the Santa Cruz Mountains. By pure coincidence, this also happened to be the dumping ground of a different serial killer who was active simultaneously. Uh, they don't coordinate, man. They got to pick their places right. Uh, yeah, this is going to be Ed Kemper, who's out there killing a bunch of co-eds in Santa Cruz. And so he's going to do his whole thing. And then later in the 1980s, actually in the 1987 year when this movie came out, Terry Childs is going to be another serial killer who had been murdering people around this time as well, but went other places than just Santa Cruz. But uh, yeah, so this is from 1970 to 1973. So for three years, you have two super active serial killers. You have a mass murderer and you have this other dude who kind of evaded police for about a decade, but still had contributed to the body count in Santa Cruz. And that is going to cause, at one point, the district attorney, whose name is Peter Chang, just muttered some comment of this must be Murdersville, USA, <laughs> in the presence of a reporter at the scene who then turned that quote around. And the next day, the head of the paper was murder capital of the world. And Chang sort of denied that this was his quote. But at that point, like, that name had stuck. You would think a district attorney would think, hey, a reporter, I better say nothing at all to this guy. I mean, it's, this was a very unprecedented <laughs> moment in Santa Cruz history. I think it was on the day that they had found like four corpses hey, or something. And they were like, what is happening, right? Because um, we're just coming off of the 60s and it's 1970, right? Like that's a very brush era to all of a sudden have all of these monstrosities and these murders pile up in this small little seaside surfer town. So yeah, I mean, nobody blames him for mishandling the, the press at that moment, but the name did stick. And that becomes kind of interesting, too, when setting this, like, vampire tale, right, in this murder capital, and not murder capital because there's just so much domestic crime. It's a very specific type of murder that the murder capital here was known for, and that's a very particular hunting predatory serial killer type of murder, which does have a lot of interesting overlays to the idea of the predatory nature and calculated nature of the vampires. So it's a, it's a cool spot, I guess, to overlay, turning the grisly parts of history into something a little bit more metaphorically whimsical. Well, anyway, our family is moving into the murder capital of the world, and we have, God, these beautiful, like, insert shots of real people in Santa Cruz, California. Joel Schumacher was very big on that, to get, like, real people, and taking the time to get great insert shots of, like, the real residents around this town, and they all look 
fucking awesome. There's this beautiful cover of the door song People Are Strange playing while this is all going down. There's a fun moment where Michael, I think that's his name, Michael, he asks, uh, hey, is there any work around here? And this really greaser-looking guy just says, nothing legal, man. Like, oh, <laughs> Santa Cruz is my kind of town. This is uh, very nice. Yeah, so they're going around this People is Strange situation. And in the novel slash script, we do get a little bit of tie-in information where Lucy and her boys, they stop at a gas station. And Michael's being a little bit of a bitch because apparently he's got this chick named Lori who he's left behind in Phoenix. Oh, and no. he's pining over her Aww. and he's like a little moody. You know, he's, he's a little I moody I wonder bitch. if he'll get over her at all. I know. It's kind of a fun, almost weird, like, Romeo and Juliet type of setup where <laughs> We're always Romeo talking at the about beginning Rosalind of the, the play is like, Rosalind, Rosalind, oh, like, no, how Rosalind. will I ever live without you? And then, like, two seconds later, he's like, oh, who's this Juliet chick? And it's it seems very similar. He's just pining over... Lori, and then that later that night he's gonna see Star, and it's gonna be fine. <laughs> but and it's like that's teen love, right? So there's almost something kind of fun in setting up the like, oh, he's a teenager. So the, his feelings for Star are are ones he's felt before. So he, he's very fickle. But while they have stopped at this gas station, they dwell on this group of very emaciated, starving homeless teenagers that are rooting through a trash can looking for food. And Lucy is going to give them $5. In the novel. And this, this is novel still. Yeah, this is novel and maybe scripts. This is like kind of the yeah. the deleted and expanded sure. stuff. The expanded and so she's going to give them Lost money. Boys universe. And reminisces here for a moment on her hippie youth. So apparently she was a hippie back in the day yeah. and had gone hitchhiking her way to Berkeley and protested the war and all of this kind of stuff. And so later when she gets to the video store and mentions like oh we were youths too and okay. these guys dress better mm -hmm. so it's this kind of set up once again of this like counterculture reading we get in this movie that the current counterculture isn't the first counterculture that there are generally always some version of counterculture to any generation and so she had been a counterculture part of her own generation and we also get this setup of the homeless here in Santa Carla slash Santa Cruz, which I actually did like because it had this kind of idea of how many disposable, quote unquote, disposable bodies that there are around this area that there are a lot of teen runaways. And there are a lot of people who, when they go missing, nobody might notice right away or might report them missing right away. So it kind of sets up this very interesting Reagan era of the predator and prey just social system that's starting to develop in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz has one of the highest homeless rates mm -hmm. in the U.S. Currently, the estimate homeless population there is, is over 9,000 people, which in the last census in 2010 was about 3.5% of the Santa Cruz population. Jeez, okay, and yeah. that's... That's a huge amount. That's where the There's vampires actually this kind of crisis okay. going there. Wow. And so that's kind of another thing, like the murder capital that they're taking from, from Santa Cruz, this idea of just this homeless transient population that are easy victims and easy prey, particularly the younger kids and the teenagers that are all runaways here. <laughs> that vampire-style narrative, I think, definitely, it holds up today, too. Netflix just did this movie called Vampires vs. the Bronx, where vampires equal gentrification, except they're mm -hmm. moving in and killing the kids from the Bronx because, as the characters themselves say, 
dude, we're black kids in the Bronx. No one cares about us. No one cares if we go missing. And apparently the vampires think that way too. So yeah, this idea that vampires are going to move in on a struggling community, that holds up, uh, you know, across the decades. <laughs> well, and what's interesting though in this one is that since the vampires are the outsiders, that they are part of that counterculture, what happens is that the gentrification is this Reagan-era ideology of conservatism and ignoring the problem. And then the vampires are going to become this alternative family that takes in and turns some of these runaways and they're mm -hmm. not going to be noticed as missing because we're also going to get later a couple of the lost boys backstories and a lot of them are runaways that aren't being missed and so nobody's looking for mm -hmm. them in the novel and again in the novel script in yeah. the novel and in the script there is a the chunk movie, in the though, script I mean. that we get stars backstory but yeah this is going to be deleted eventually from the final product right. but Grandpa's house! We get to Grandpa's house! And he's dead. Or is he? He's feigning death. He's feigning death because that's how Grandpa do. He's like, I was playing dead and doing a damn good job of it. This house, by the way, the outside is beautiful. It's a an old hunting lodge outside of Santa Cruz, I believe. What is it? What's it called? The Poganip Country Club? Is what you have? Poganip? Poganip, yeah, yes. Not... A lot of the great ex like sets are exteriors. They are Santa Cruz natives. The inside of it is a seamless uh, set job, uh, a beautiful set they build on one of the Warner Brothers stages. Yeah, stage 15. Stage 15. Good stage, man. It's a fine stage. Decent It place. is a good stage. I've actually worked in stage 15 before. Really? It's, a, it's a decent spot. It's a very large stage. So the two stages that they're going to use for this movie... It's not completely unusual that you'd only use one or two stages, but often bigger productions use more stages. But this one's just going to get stage 12 and 15. And stage 12 is a tiny little stage. It is one of the more original buildings to the Warner Brothers lot. Warner Brothers has kept building out their mm -hmm. their stages. The, those numbers keep going up. <laughs> but stage 15 is going to be the shots of the grandfather's house. And there were cool production interviews that I came across that looked at how meticulously they tried to match. Because you're shooting the outsides or the exterior up in this outdoor naturalist space where the wind is causing leaves to blow about and whatnot. And so they were taking production photos and sending them back to the sets. And they were trying to like pick certain leaves and put them yeah, in the Yeah, I right think one places. of the Corys described this, the indoor set as leaf for leaf perfect to the exterior yeah so they really worked hard on that and i respect that and so stage 12 is later going to be used for the cave shot interiors but stage 12 and 15 are also the same stages that they used for the goonies so we're actually getting i've heard of it another weird little goonies <laughs> another reason why it kind of feels spatially like the goonies is they're actually using the same square footage of space sure but the goonies pirate ship is going to be on stage 16 oh, okay but, well they... So they actually got more stages yeah whatever I love that Michael does the broiest thing possible, and he brings his shirts in hanging on a barbell set that he has, because that's the easiest way to do that, I imagine. I noticed that, too. I loved the way that these guys were moving stuff into Did their Did he house. have it like that in the car, where his shirt's not in a suitcase? They were just on the barbells in the car? That seems un 
sound. I don't know. I don't lift uh, the weights that Michael does. I think that's his name. So he puts those clothes down and just starts doing some curls immediately. Like, oh man, I was atrophying in that car ride. I gotta, I gotta lift, man. Gotta get to it. Meanwhile, the mother, she's doing a similar situation where she's bringing in her stuff and she's got multiple hats on her head. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the mother wears many hats. Great. You see, literally here. And she does, yes. But this is just another like. This is the easiest way to bring all of these hats in. It's just to wear them all at once. Yes, we also like that's we great. get some backstory where Sam has complained that there's no TV, and Michael tells him, "Dude, we are flat broke right now. There is not going to be a TV at the moment." And then Lucy explains to us, the audience, and you know, while talking to her father, that she is now newly divorced, and her dad says, "Here, you're the only woman I know that made her life worse by getting divorced." Which eh, strange statement, Grandpa. But what are you gonna do? Nullvisation tie-in, the deadbeat father's name is Lance, and Lance. he's yeah. mostly just an asshole that didn't want anything to do with them, so she just really needed a clean break, and decided, you know, move back home rather than deal with this asshole. Lance also did not get along with the grandfather, and so these children did not grow up knowing their grandfather, oh, which is why okay. they're kind of new, I guess, to this house and area and seeing their yeah. grandfather's eccentricities. There's some deleted scene later on where Michael mentions that he came out to Santa Cruz during summers when he was a kid, but wasn't too familiar with the area besides that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it seems like this is the time they're really getting to know their grandfather. And they get to know their grandfather because Grandpa, he he's an interesting dude. He's got the shelf in the fridge. Like, that's my root beer and my junk food. No one touches that shelf but me. And there's a unspoken, silent, but still very telling moment where Michael points out a window at a plant, motions to Sam, and makes a, like, puffing motion with his hands, insinuating that Grandpa grows some weed. Yeah. This old man is into taxidermy, and he's always high. He reads TV guides, but does not have a television, because if you read the TV guides, you don't need to watch television. Grandpa gets it. Yeah, he's just a stoner taxidermist. (laughs) Oh, God, so good. It's now nighttime. We go straight to night, more flying over the water, so you know vampires, they're on the prowl there, heading back to that beautiful boardwalk. And you have a quote from Joel Schumacher? I do, yeah, because he talked about how the daytime shots were deliberately a little bit more natural in their tone and their lighting and the way that things move. But at night, he said, we combined elements of the real and the familiar with those slightly surreal and bizarre, a process which provided a disorienting effect. So that was on purpose. Mm -hmm. They really wanted to have these strange movements of the camera to just make everything a little bit more dreamscapey at night. Yeah, and it does, it comes across that way because we enter into what should be someone's dream, where we have the most glorious saxophonist of all time playing for a concert at the boardwalk. I'm not going to lie. I got aroused by this. All right. That's fair. It's an 80s, like, muscle beach. Like, that's a classic Specifically for a the saxophonist. I mean, I'm sure you'll be the first to say that I have the most boring sexuality of all time. And yet, looking at this greased-up, buff saxophone player playing the saxophone and singing to this crowd. There's just something amazing about this. And the first time I saw this, I thought, okay, so they got a bodybuilder in, they gave him a saxophone, had him kind of like 
mouth the words or whatever. Turns out, no, this guy is a real musician, uh, Tommy Capella. He's a legit saxophonist, played with Tina Turner for many years, was in the We Don't Need Another Hero music video from the Mad Max movie, and would go on to like do his own thing for a whole lot. So I'm like, whoa, this is a real guy. I'm further aroused. Did not expect that, but I'm not fighting it either. So... Good time. Do you think it was the dog collar, maybe? Benji? He had, like, the dog collar going. He had those cool chains on his arms and, like, had the crazy, like, spandex leggings things going on. And he's just gloriously glistening with sweat during this performance. I think that like, there's another element of, like, you know, the performer in me stage work is just such an exhilarating performance. So... The idea of someone who is so into that they are, like, drenched with sweat as they perform for a crowd just works for me. Oddly, this character shows up again in the comics. He's a vampire (laughs) slayer himself in, like, a secret underground vampire hunting gang in the comics that Grandpa's also a part of. And the reason he's always glistening is that he always covers himself in holy water. Interesting. (laughs) Although... I, it would have to be a holy oil, because, like, that dude is oil slicked up. Like, that is some glycerin. A little of the good jelly mixed in with some holy water. Or maybe you could just, like, get the gel ordained by uh, a Catholic priest, you know, and nominate Patri, like, on a bottle of KY, and you're good to go. Yeah. Holy lube. <laughs> holy That's lube! A, yeah, he's got the holy new lube market. going. <laughs> Vampires, they can't touch them, and even if they do, they just slide off. Oh, man, that's like, no, there's like some sadomasochistic potential there with like (laughs) vampire erotica and holy loop. All right, so yes, we've got this muscled up beach man performance. I can't really appreciate (sighs) you, but I can appreciate that you're into the 80s beach muscle aesthetic. I respect that. It works, man. There's so many factors there that just are mwah. Perfect. And this is a time for romance, too, because Michael, I think that's his name, is going to see a woman and he is going to be just enchanted by this beautiful, raven-haired, curly-haired woman who's also watching this show. I don't know why he's watching her when Capella saxophonist is up on the stage, but that's just me. Yeah, he does seem really enchanted. Like, immediately. Star. Star is just going to have this presence I mean, like, they do make eye contact, and then she walks away, and he just follows her. And you're like, creeper move, bro. Yeah. Like, she just left. But he does seem to maybe be a little bit entranced. Is there so, anything okay. in the novel or the script about her doing a glimmer on him or hypnotizing him in any way, shape, or form? Uh, not that I can recall in terms of a particular hypnotic glamour, but you do get the sense, like you do in the movie, that she is a very particular pawn or lure so mm. she is kind of the equivalent of like the puppy that serial killers use to lure children into their vans Ooh, right yeah. this kind of idea of like hey hey dude here's like this hot chick in this white dress and we're gonna dangle her in front of you and like let's just walk on over here it is also a leftover remnant to the Peter Pan original script with this idea of stars. So in Peter Pan, how you get to the Lost Boys, right, is you look for that whatever star and you follow it to the oh, right the and second straight, star on the right, morning. straight on till morning. And that is what he's going to do, right? Ah. Is he's going to take that path following the star to the Lost well, Boys. No, that only works if there was a first woman named Star a little to her left. No, you just follow the one star. No, it's the second <laughs> star to the right. Everyone... What planet have you been living on? It's the second... uh, Whatever. Well, apparently Tommy Capello is the first star, and then over to his right... Tommy Capello is the only star. 
Well, right. not for Michael, apparently. I guess not. The fact that he is so enchanted by this woman is made extra funny by the story that Joel Schumacher tells in his commentary. Apparently, casting Jamie Gertz for Star was a big push from Jason Patrick. He had done a play with her, and Joel Schumacher originally saw this as some sort of like blonde pixie character. Mm-hmm. Like a beach bunny. Yeah, or Which makes maybe sense. close to like what we think of Tinkerbell, like a blonde pixie, but... Jason Patrick's like, no, no, man, Jamie Gertz, she's the best. And Schumacher's like, yeah, I think that that Jason may have just had a very intense crush on her at the time. (laughs) So that was not a bad choice to make her this character star to now get essentially stalked by Max. Yeah, to get followed straight on until morning. (laughs) And so he's, yeah, he's going to go and follow her. Meanwhile, we've got the mom, Lucy, who instead of being named Wendy in this, is named Lucy huh. after the Dracula character. You don't So we're getting say. a little Dracula in there, which makes more sense, really, mm-hmm. for her, because most of her storyline is, is about being lured in and enchanted by mm-hmm. our Dracula Max figure. And Lucy in the novel is one of the characters under Dracula's thrall, mm. as it were. She's going to walk past a bunch of missing children and people posters and cop posters. I really love the production design element of just all of the missing people posters <laughs> that we get up all across There are so many Santa of these Carla. things. I know you mentioned like the real life murders that were going on in Santa Cruz. I imagine if you like compare the figures of those dead bodies versus missing person posters in this movie, it's like real life Santa Cruz times 10 or something. Yeah, oh no, it's just, yeah, everybody is missing (laughs) in Santa Carla. And I really love that. There's something really fun and weird about the threat of that that has just become so mundane that there are just these forgotten, wrinkling, (laughs) missing posters up all over the Uh, place. Well, Lucy finds a young boy on the boardwalk who seems to be lost. He is a lost boy, if you will, and takes him inside to see if she can find someone. And a mother comes in and says, oh, you found him. Great, thank you. And then... It's Grandpa Gilmore. Yeah, Ed Herman. So when Lucy finds this child, there is this feel in the script that this was also kind of like Star for the Lost Boys, a very deliberate lure put out by Max into the street. And I also got the sense I was reading the script that this was Laddie, the same boy that is going to be a little vampire later. I don't think they end up casting the same okay, boy, yeah, but yeah, that's the vibe that mm-hmm. one gets when reading this is that, so he might have more little children out and more women mm-hmm. that we don't see, but that he's basically putting this little fishing hook out there to try to reel in a mother who cares. And so Lucy, our mother who cares, is going to come in looking for this child. the only mother. woman in Santa Cruz that gave a shit, so... Yeah. And Santa Carla. Sorry. They cared about the lost boy, right? And so she's going to come in, and she's going to come in, and she's going to see Max Ed Herman. (laughs) And Ed Herman is so enjoyable in the interviews Mm -hmm. about this movie. Sweet, delightful man, I got to (laughs) say. He is a delightful man. He was so excited, apparently, to get this script pitched to him. His quote was like, this is great. Anything to get out of a suit and not play a historical character. I'm in. Oh, Yeah, I didn't really know too much about his career prior to this. I guess he did a lot of historical dramas or something. Yeah, I mean, he had done other things other than historical dramas, but I think he tends to get typecast as that a lot. And he was really excited to get to play this, like, 
slick, sexy character. It was cute because he described him as like, I never thought I, you know, would get to play like a sexy character. I'm like, that's so Aww. cute that you like think of Max as like the sexy <laughs> character. I'm like, Ed Herman, you're always sexy. Like, what are you talking about? But just so pleased. And he really liked this idea that this. Uh, so, yeah, like spoiler alert, like Max is going to be a vampire because like we're going to talk about that throughout yeah. but we're not going to learn that yet in the movie <laughs> but he is this vampire and he's a very reagan era vampire because <laughs> the reagan vampire what ed herman really liked about this vampire was this idea that he was obsessed with this like reagan era nuclear family ideology where he didn't want to destroy right he wanted to create and collect and build up this specific type of structure so he's this like kind of counterpoint to our counterculture lost boys that he has cultivated out there on the streets to kind of work for them because he is showing this front of the good hard-working family way there's something really creepy about that and there's something creepy about that for joel schumacher mm. being part of like the counterculture <laughs> as he is himself and so it's kind of cool to make this reagan era vampire like our big bad and in the script, we're going to get a deleted scene where later Lucy's going to come back and look for him at some point, And she's going to learn from the girl who works at the store that Max only comes in at night. And the reason she gives for this is because he's trying to open a new location in Los Gatos. Huh. But we really know it's because he's a vampire right, yeah. and he's sleeping. But there's also some fun different sequel potential there that it seems like he might have actually also been setting up a second family in some <laughs> other town. But uh, yeah, so these are all the things on Max. Max is great. Yeah, I love that he and he's gonna hit on Lucy. He wants to reward her for helping that kid out and hands her a lollipop. And at first, Lucy says, "Oh no." Well, actually, yeah. I'm like, oh, do I dare get decadent with this lollipop? Yeah, I do. I do. That's how I roll. Yeah, there's also something kind of fun about this idea of this head vampire owning and running a video rental oh, store. I miss video rental stores, man. I do, too. I mean, I love streaming technology. Don't get me wrong. I, w I would go crazy without it. But, man, there was something great about going to video stores and picking out random shit. There's something amazingly mundane and weird about a immortal <laughs> head being running a video store, but why he actually is running this video store is because, for those who don't remember video stores, in order to rent, you actually had to take out a rental card, and in order to take out a rental card or rent from their system, they would have your information on file, ah, your phone number and your address, true, yeah. which is actually why later when Max tries to find Lucy after she runs out on their date, he knows exactly where she lives. <laughs> and he likely knows where almost everybody in Santa Carla yeah. lives because he runs and operates the video store that I Not just the video from. store, the best selection of videos in Santa Carla. I love how he pimps that out. Like, come in, we have the best collection of videos in all of Santa Carla. I'm like, oh, oh, look at this big man over here. Yeah. So it, there's something really kind of cool and creepy about this surveillance <laughs> situation that he has set up for himself oh, love. under the guise of youth culture and video rentals. I love that. Michael, I think that's his name, and Sam are now walking around. <laughs> Sam does not want to have to follow Michael, this girl with Michael. is like, I'm like subjective to your sex glands, Michael. I don't like this. And he sees a comic. Yeah, good. Yeah, and he's like, Michael just says, well, go do something else. Uh, there's nothing else to do. Oh, hey, a comic shop. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so he heads into Neat. a comic shop. 
And this is where we meet the Frog Brothers. Edgar Frog, <laughs> played by Corey Feldman, and Alan Frog, played by Jameson Newlander. Sadly, they, they do not have a sister named Poe. That would complete the whole thing, but... It would complete the set. What are you going to do? And they're scoping him out because he has very bad fashion sense. We should comment on Sam's outfit here. Oh my god, his outfits are so good. Is, They're yeah, so I love good. that like in the special features they talked about how it was a very deliberate choice to make Sam a mall fashion victim. He's moved yeah. out to Santa Carla, which to him is a rural area. I guess in Phoenix he was more of an urban kid. And was at the mall a lot, so he went shopping for clothes, just whatever he could buy, and he just went with whatever the fashion was saying at the time. And so his outfits end up, I mean, I don't even know how to describe this. So he is wearing a maxi overcoat yeah. with these wild brown, black, and gray print patterns. And it's going to be over some very colorful geometric shirt. Later, he's going to have a shirt that has little like cartoon people on it. And it's really creepy. But he is the pinnacle of the yuppie culture (laughs) that was going for the commercial homogenous mall look. But then he takes it overboard because he doesn't know how to mix the things. And so the costume designer, Susan Becker, described it as, quote unquote, He's beyond fashion. (laughs) He goes so hard. He went overboard on 80s fashion. Think about that, folks. Yeah, but in the yuppie way, right? So early 2000s comparison, when there was that resurrection of a certain type of yuppie aesthetic with the popped collar. So those polo shirts with the popped collar and like the puka shell necklaces. So this would be as if he was for some reason wearing like two polo shirts on top of each other and had both of the collars pop. That he was wearing like this collection of puka shell necklaces because he doesn't quite understand. He's like, well, if one's good, then seven must be better, right? If one geometric print is good, I should mix them. And it's going to be great. And so, yeah, Susan Becker works with Joel Schumacher a lot as his costume designer. So she had already done St. Elmo's Fire and Flatlanders with him. She's just a really great costumer. And because his fashion is so egregiously, like, not on point, you can see that the Frog Brothers, yeah, they're eyeing him up. Like, is this a vampire? Is this an ancient being yeah. that's so out of touch with hip culture mm-hmm. that, like, he's a walking child of the night? And But no, he's just clueless. They have a... <laughs> Edgar says, uh, if you're looking for the diet frozen yogurt stand, it went out of business. Like, you yuppie fuck, look at you. And they have a conversation yeah. about comics, and I pulled this because it's so funny to me. Actually, I'm looking for a Batman number 14. That's a very serious book, man. Only five in existence. Four, actually. I'm always looking out for the other three. Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Laurie the Mars hasn't even been introduced. A few things to unpack there. This idea that there are only four copies in existence of Batman number 14 is a little crazy. You can go to eBay and find more than four listings quite easily. The fact that Edgar says it's a very serious comic book. Like, well, any Batman comic from the World War II is going to be a very serious comic book. And then the whole thing about, like, oh, you can't put the Superman 77s next to the 200s because of this plot factor that I looked it up is not actually accurate. I would argue you can't put those comic books next to each other because those are very different numbers and it doesn't make sense to put them next to each other at all, no matter what their plot are. Yeah, it seems like 
ordering your comics sequentially just makes the most sense. Yeah. So the script actually notes this comic. So there is a Batman volume one number 14 issue that came out in 1946 that I'm assuming is the one that all of us generally think of when he says Batman 14. But the script actually notes that this Batman comic that he has is Batman Series E, Volume 26, Number 14. So that's, okay, not the just the 14th Batman comic book ever published, but something right. different. This is something different. And I don't know if it's real or not. I could not find <laughs> anything on it. I do know that Joel Schumacher is a huge Batman fan. You don't and say. And so if anyone knew about some sort of really super obscure Batman comic, then it might be Joel Schumacher, but my comics knowledge is is weak in this regard, but I can say that it is not meant to be in the script, the volume one, number 14. However, this comic book knowledge is enough to impress the Frog Brothers that this guy, he might be on the level. This guy might be okay. We can't be for sure yet. We need to give him a vampire comic. Have him read up on that. Yeah. Even though, even though Sam's like, I don't like horror comics. This comic might save your life one day, man. Yeah, in the tie-ins, it specifically states that they make him pay for it. <laughs> so that actually <laughs> is a, a little move. bit, it creates a little bit more of this ambiguous boundary of whether or not they're serious. Because it comes across a little bit more as like a sales pitch, right? Yeah. Like, you got to buy this comic. And it's like, fine, I guess I will. And so he does pay for it. Yeah. But this comic book shop is the Atlantis Fantasy World. Nice name. It is a comic book shop and was at the time a comic book shop in Santa Cruz, although not on the boardwalk. It's going to look like it's on the boardwalk in this movie. And how they did that is they took some drywall and extended it out in front of where the front door of the comic shop is. So that (laughs) when they're getting those shots out the door, it looked like the graffitied boardwalk. Yeah, no, that was really well done. Well, after the comic book shop scene, Sam catches up with Michael just as he's being more or less rejected by Star because she's hopping on the back of this motorcycle with David, uh, played by uh, Kiefer Sutherland, David, though we don't, I don't think we learned David's name until a little bit later in the movie. But, they, <laughs> I mean, he, him and Stark exchange a look, but then David and Michael exchange a look. And this is where you start to think, whoa, that, there's some energy happening between these two. Fuck yeah, there's there is. something going on there. They all drive off, and Sam laughs at Michael. He's like, ha you got stiffed by her. And he's like, and that's not her I want to be stiffed by. God damn Exactly. He's like, I thought she was hot, and then I saw Kiefer Sutherland on a motorcycle. Oh, boy. Game changer. Damn, son. The next day, Grandpa is showing Sam the car. You have a weird gag where he they get in the car. Grandpa says, I'm going to take you into town. Starts the car, turns it off. That's as close into town as I like to get. And there are some wisely deleted scenes from all of this where Sam is spying on his grandpa while he does taxidermy, gets bored, tries, as you do. tries to cut a leaf from the pot plant and light it and sniff it, which is really weird. But kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, he's innocent. He's never smoked yeah. pot before. He sees this pot leaf and he's like, well, people apparently smoke yeah. this, so I'll try. Having been bored here, he goes back to visit the comic book store and the Frog Brothers. And this is where the Frog Brothers explain like, yeah, man, we're vampire hunters. We're here about the truth, justice in the American way. So great. So great. Uh, here's our number. Pray you never have to call us. <laughs> 
And on the boardwalk, Max, immediately trying to emulate what he saw in David the night before, is buying a leather jacket and looking in again, his ear pierced. And again, this is where you, you can't ignore the energy that was between those two, because he took one look at this guy and just said, I need to do him, I need to do what he is doing. I need a leather jacket and I need my ear pierced. But before he can get his ear pierced, Star just appears behind him. He's like, oh, don't do that. I can do this for you. And the <laughs> script is going to have a little bit more stuff flushed out here, including some deleted moments where Michael gets a job. Oh yeah, there's like a whole deleted day uh, in the story of this film. It's in the deleted scenes as well, but yeah, in the script, go ahead. Yeah, the lost day, basically. The lost voice has a lost day. And Michael gets a job, and that job is collecting trash oh. off of the beach. Oh, so fun times. he's going to just be picking up a bunch of trash on the beach. He doesn't come across any bodies on the beach, so apparently oh. the beach is not where they dump bodies, although that would have been a cool moment, right? <laughs> and it's just like this tireless thing, and then he finally gets done with one, and then he gets sent to another one. It's just oh. more trash, and he's like, this is an endless cycle of the mm -hmm. mundane nature of the labor force and the futile ways. And so, yeah, they're kind of like just setting up this, like, this is your life as a human part of mainstream culture in America. And so that's another reason later that the Lost Boys are going to be kind of seductive and alluring because they don't pick up other people's trash off of beaches. Mm. But he makes some money, and at first he's going to go and offer his mom some of the money, which is really sweet, actually. It's a very humanizing moment yeah. for Michael to be like, hey, like I'm making money, I know our family needs some. And Lucy, being the sweetheart she is, she's like, no, that's your money, go get yourself you know, something nice with it. And so he's going to go, and he's going to get that leather jacket because... Kiefer Sutherland wears leather and he wants to be like Kiefer Sutherland and he wants to fit in with the Lost Boys because Star seems to also like the Lost Boys and yeah he does think about that earring piercing she pops up and she's like I'll do it for you and then the gang drives up and she actually in the script is going to say the Lost Boys out loud. She's going to say that name of the movie. Hey, that's the name of the show. <laughs> yeah, she's going to say that name of the movie, which we don't get here. But we do get the sense that is the name of the gang. That's like their official moniker mm. or whatever. And yeah. that's nice. So I'm not sure why they cut that specifically, but they did. And they're going to have a little beach. Yeah, race. Uh, he. Well, I just I, I like this clip. You know where Hudson's Bluff is overlooking the point? I can't beat your bike. You don't have to beat me, Michael. Just have to try and keep up. Aww. There is some fucking fusion happening between these two guys when they look into each other's eyes. You don't have to beat me, Michael. You just have to beat me off. <laughs> or try to keep up. Or try Neither to keep, one is acceptable. Just try to keep it up. Like, try to keep up with me. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he does. And they have, yes, a motorcycle chase on the beach with this the music here the action the cinematography is great there's all these beautiful horizontal blue lens flares which is a, an artifact that you get when you film with anamorphic lenses that are different from spherical lenses that's how we get like the widescreen 2.35 aspect ratio uh, from film but those blue lens flares are a big part of those and when anamorphic lenses are sold to indie filmmakers today they are marketed as saying we will give you the blue horizontal lens flares and people just go ape shit for that and on the commentary even Joel Schumacher says yeah we did this anamorphic and that really is just the most beautiful way to capture film 
Yeah, Jill. So what is it about the anamorphic lens that creates that horizontal blue lens uh, flare? It's because, I can't really get into the science of it, but if you took a normal lens and you looked through it, and you know, had it open on both ends, you would see a circle. If you took an anamorphic lens and looked through it, you would see more of an oval because an anamorphic lens is not really seen in a circle so much as it's kind of seen in a stretched out, wider, you know, hence widescreen, a wider you know, area of view. And when you shine light through that lens, when it's bouncing off you know, the elements inside the lens itself, which is what l gives us lens flares, because it's distorting things out wider, that's why you get that weird wide blue flare. I don't know why it's specifically cool. blue, but that's why we're getting like it's so stretched horizontally. Yeah, I, I do love a good lens flare, and I do love a good anamorphic blue lens flare. And yeah... Joel Schumacher will continue to use those for quite some time, it seems. They finally end with Michael falling over and then coming up, punching David right in the face and saying, come on, just you, come yeah. on. And David looks at him and says, how far are you willing to go? Like, All the way, oh, all the way, good David. God, well, they're going to go all the way to the lair, to the hideout. And he's just smiling. Like, he's so pleased yeah. to have just been punched God, in the face. He's like, like that was so the best fun. thing that could have happened to me today was I found 20 he bucks and I got punched in the face and I liked getting punched in the face more, you know? Yeah, it was it was great. Like, yeah, he just looks so happy to have been punched in the face. It was kind of fun. And yes, they do go all the way to that cave. Oh, and this cave is so fucking cool. Okay, it's, I mean, we can talk about like the actual look of this place. The way that this thing was built is so cool to me. Because again, Joel Schumacher, will point, is not shy about how low the budget was mm -hmm. in this movie. So they couldn't build a full set. So Bo Welch, the production designer, did this amazing thing. And it's the illusion is perfect to me. Bo Welch just made a whole bunch of flats that they could move around that had walls of the layer on them, and whatever the shot dictated, they would just move these handful of flats around the right way to create the look of this inner sanctum, this, like, collapsed hotel lobby that's underground, and I never would have guessed that. I just always thought this was some huge, gigantic set that they built on stage 15. Mm-hmm. Nope, stage 12, the tiny little nope. stage. Okay, so I wasn't confused so about weak. the stage itself. That was not the illusion, but more. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, I can't stress how small stage 12 is. So. You plebeian, you thought it was stage 15? Ha! Stage 12. You dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> you, Look at you over here getting your stages confused. You clearly you never worked on stage 15. You don't know the difference between stage 15 and stage 12. <laughs> Go hang out with the idiots on stage 8. <laughs> Asshole. Yeah, come on. <laughs> but how, how would you describe the look of this place? It's just so fucking gorgeous. And it's it's the sexy that Joel Schumacher is bringing to this. That, that is like what this place oozes with. This is a sexy fucking lair that these guys are in. It's got a little hint of like Dino Velvet's office yes, from 8mm. definitely. The texture is screaming at but you. But it's what a Victorian dumpster site would look like. So if Victorians were to dump all of their trash in an underground cave hotel and then a bunch of mole people were to scurry around and assemble some sort of hanging haunt space out of this Victorian dumpster pile. And then Dino Velvet came in and was like, I have some final touches here that I feel very strongly about that you need these skulls and these dripping candles. 
And it's all lit. I mean, it's in no way motivated lighting that's going on in here. It's lit beautifully by Michael Chapman, but there's no reason for those lights to be coming where they are coming from. But it's all so gorgeous, you forgive it, because the look just clicks, man. It works so well. This is where these sexy vampires like to hang out, and I believe it 100%. It is just a spectacular Joel Schumacher-looking cave. Because we have mentioned before just how much Joel Schumacher loves his derelict spaces, loves the alternative spaces. So this movie is just so well-suited for Joel Schumacher because it is the counterculture pure dwelling. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, just space, so that we do get just graffiti boardwalks and cave hotels. And that's, yeah, that's a Joel Schumacher dream right there, and it shows. So this cave itself, the exterior shots are filmed not in Santa Cruz, actually, but 380 miles south of yeah, Santa it's Cruz, closer so to, closer to L.A. Yeah, closer to L.A. I think Joel Schumacher mentioned there were cliffs in Santa Cruz, but they're so high that you couldn't really get a good perspective on the water from the tops of those things. Mm-hmm. So they had to go something Yeah, a this lower. Hudson Bluff area mm-hmm. is going to be really hard to film in. And the interior, as we mentioned, are going to be on the sound stages. But we get this story diegetically that this was a hotel that had sunk into the earth and into these caves during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And that seemed a little far-fetched to me that an entire hotel could just sink into the earth in seemingly one piece, but this might not be as fetched as far as I thought. No. So I I have another story to tell. Oh, good. I'll go get a drink and let you do that. And (laughs) that's going to (laughs) happen at 5.12 a.m. on Wednesday, April 18th, when the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 is going to hit the California coastline. But much of San Francisco is built on something called made land. And this is because San Francisco's natural land is mostly just really steep hillsides these sand dunes, these rolling sand dunes, and marshes, or what were once marshes. And so in order to build anything stable on any of these things, you actually have to make land that is firmer, that can be built upon. And that is mostly going to happen by just putting a lot of sand and debris into these old marshes and pack them in very tightly to try to create this solid surface, right? Especially in 1906 is how they did it. And what ends up happening as well, so there's this process called liquefaction. And liquefaction takes place when that loosely packed, quote-unquote, made land becomes a little wet and waterlogged, and then when you apply pressure and shaking, it's going to shake that ground loose. When this earthquake hit, it caused this liquefaction process through large patches of San Francisco that had been built on top of these rivers and marshes. And so liquefaction happened, and it was like these buildings got just sucked up by quicksand. They just went down into the earth. And there was one hotel... In particular, the Valencia Street Hotel that was located in San Francisco, not Santa Cruz. But the Valencia Hotel, when this liquefaction process happened, it just sunk into the earth. It was four stories. One story remained above ground. There are a couple of pictures still of the Valencia Street Hotel with just like the roof and half of the first story showing. 
The other three were just submerged very quickly underground. It was another really horrific event. Lots of people died because there was just that immediate collapse and the drowning. And then there was a rescue team effort for a couple of days, but then the fires were spreading. It was just this horrific sort of thing. But yes, this hotel did sink completely into the ground. And so that could have happened. And it does seem like the Valencia Hotel was what this particular hotel is based off of because it has that Victorian architecture that they're going to carry through into the movie. And there's also something kind of haunting about the idea of just how much destruction and death happened during this event that is now this vampire playground. And so that's kind of fitting, but haunting and sad at the same time. But the borrowed aesthetic of this Victorian sunken hotel was another purposeful production choice because, quote unquote, it helped us present modern day vampires without losing their mythical past, is the production quote there, because it contained all of these interesting architectural elements from different time periods, specifically this Victorian era that we often think of when we first think of the vampire. Final crazy note about this is that in the really early drafts of the screenplay, instead of the Jim Morrison poster, there's actually a portrait of Max where the, the Jim Morrison poster <laughs> is. Uh. And in this getup of late 1800s clothing aesthetic. Uh. And so this idea that this might have actually been his hotel during the Victorian era. And that's why it's become this playground or the lair hideout for the Lost Boys is because this is his old hotel that it's on. Ah, now the thing, the big thing of Jim Morrison works better. I mean, and Joel Schumacher himself said that it just seemed very appropriate that the vampires would be fans of the doors because the music from the doors has this kind of haunting nihilistic quality to it that these vampires are most likely going to be into. Marco brings them some Chinese food that the vampires are going to eat. This did trip me up a little bit. Vampires are just eating food. Yeah, well, some of them do eat food sometimes as part of this idea that they don't need to eat, but sometimes they do it for the pleasure of eating. Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, David hypnotizes Michael in some way, makes him think that he's eating maggots and then later worms. And as I discovered the commentary, Joel Schumacher explains... To get maggots and worms to move, you have to sprinkle lemon juice on them. Otherwise, they're just going to lay there completely flat. And I'd also forgotten that, you know, in Hollywood, there are always wranglers for animals, and there were maggot and worm wranglers needed for these scenes. Like Crazy. Yeah. Could you imagine if that was your official job? You're like, I'm a maggot yeah, wrangler. Uh, it's no big deal. Best one in Hollywood, baby. I'm the best. You people think of maggots, they think of me. So they used real maggots and worms on this then, I take yes, it? Yes, yeah. They're, they're right. real. And then tortured them by sprinkling some lemon <laughs> juice so. for them to maybe, make maybe them. Maybe Peter doesn't let you do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, interesting. No, I didn't know that they used real ones. Although, I guess they do look real, so that makes sense because they didn't have a big digital budget. So, yeah, I just hadn't really thought about mm -hmm. it. I do know that in the script, once again, I guess they just cut out most of the pot moments and references mm. that they get super high before going and picking up this Chinese oh. food. And that is one of the reasons that Michael doesn't question too hard, that he keeps going back and forth between seeing rice and maggots oh. because he thinks it's the pot. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That makes a bit more sense. Yeah, if you play that like he's super high and just don't have his mind, 
and you don't even trust your own vision, that's, yeah, yeah. Well, it gets a little scary. He's like, whoa, maggots, man. Oh, man. I'm super suggestible right um, now, you know? I, I, I mean, I would be down for anything. I mean, I don't know. If, okay, if you want me to take my pants off, I don't know. I could do that. Whatever. Yeah, you want to fuck under this Jim Morrison poster? I mean, I want to fuck that Jim Morrison poster. What movie was it? Oh, it was a... Uh... Under the Silver Lake that they fucked under that picture of Kurt Cobain. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we watched that. We've got the name since we watched anyway, that. Yeah. Um, so then they bring out this, like, really bejeweled deluxe bottle. The ornate bottle of undetermined red fluid is what I kept calling this yeah. thing. David takes a swig from it and then tells Michael, drink this. And, like, leans in and just, good Lord, if eyes could have an erection, Kiefer's would in this moment, where he leans forward and says drink it michael be one of us and they're all like saying go for it go for it and star says no don't do that it's blood and michael's like it's not you i'm trying to impress star yeah it's like bitch chill (laughs) keeper sutherland asked me to drink something i'm gonna drink it if you look at this as he's really high his reaction to star's statement it's full of blood makes a lot more sense because she says no no drink it it's blood he's just like (laughs) whatever yeah, well, he's like, yeah, sure, because he's already seen that he can't trust his mind. Like, they keep trying to tell him, oh, it's maggots, you know, and he's like, what? And they're like, no, nah, it's just rice. Yeah. And he's like, it's worms. What? No, it's just noodles. So now they're like, it's blood. And he's like, I'm not falling for that ha. a third time, right? <laughs> so this is like a very interesting form of vampire grooming <laughs> that's happening here. They're, they're bringing him in. He takes a swig of yep. that blood. And he things start getting trippy. There are... All these crossfades of him drinking the blood, wandering around, David looking right at the camera like through flames and saying, Michael, Michael. And Schumacher noted like, thank God MTV made like really abstract imagery a common thing because there's no way we could have gotten away with all the weird crossfades we were doing in this scene otherwise. That's interesting. That's, yeah, that makes actually a lot of sense that MTV would have had that impact on youth culture and crossfades. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is, yeah, it's a, it's a trippy vibe. We get that song once more. Little <laughs> Sister, whatever it is. It's, it's going to just, yeah, like, I love, like, just the refrain that keeps happening over and over <laughs> again. It's just this weird restart every single time these vampires are around like suddenly the song fades Uh, in yeah very good they head out to a railway bridge yeah because the initiation is not over quite yet so they got him to drink it but now he drank it's time to dangle from a railway bridge not that kind of dangle unfortunately that would just be cutting to the chase wouldn't it yeah, I mean, this still escalates wonderfully quickly, but they're like, well, let's just go hang off this bridge. We're going to play a little game of chicken again. It's very exhilarating. Their hearts are pumping. If their hearts pump, I don't yeah. know how their vampire anatomy works. Star isn't even here for this part. She is gone by now, and Michael is still trying to just go along with everything that they say. Because he's enthralled. The energy between David and Michael cannot be denied. You thought Michael was just here for Star. Well, Star's not around. Why are you doing this, Michael? Unless David's really convincing you to do it. He's seductive. He's enthralled. And this train is going overhead. Yeah, they dangle from the train tracks underneath a bridge, and the train goes over. They fall one by one. Kiefer Sutherland's just like, you're one of us, Michael. Just let go. And David lets go. And you can see Michael struggling with this part of himself Mm -hmm. if he's going to accept that he is indeed just going to let go and free fall into this fog. 
But then he realizes he can't quite do it. Like, he kind of struggles a little bit. He tries to pull himself mm-hmm. back up, and then he falls. And this is one of those moments that is a really interesting one for the queer readings yeah. of this film in terms of this self-acceptance of what he is and the group that he might belong to and the group that is waiting with open arms to accept him and recognize in him some sort of kinship, right? That David spotted him on this boardwalk and knew you're one of us. We're going to invite you into this world. This is going to be strengthened by the fact that these vampires, and we have not talked about their clothes yet in full, are dressed like 80s gay club culture. Mm -hmm. It is amazing like they've got a lot of leather they've got a lot of the stud jewelry stuff and it is a counterculture look but it's also specifically going to be a very specific gay club look and that is also another intentional choice right and so we have this very interesting moment here where michael is struggling to decide whether or not he's going to fully let go and join this brethren yeah. of vampires, and he falls because he can't help now, it. Real quick, when you mentioning the look of the vampires, how they are dressed, that's gay club culture, that's fascinating because when we get to the second movie, our new brood of vampires are so far from that. They all look like mm-hmm. they're trying to dress like Fred Durst. Uh, Limp Biscuit style <laughs> and are constantly talking about like how they're going to get laid tonight, score this chick, score that chick, on and on and on and on. It, I mean, it's like they're characters from Entourage or something. So it's like going so hard in the no homo part of it, like in stark contrast to the readings that you can get from this movie. That's uh, it's just interesting. An interesting That's disappointing. Yeah, fascinating contrast now that I think about it. Oh, curious. Yeah, I still have to see those two sequels. No, you don't. I did read no, the four-issue comics, Reign of Frogs. Uh, yeah, those, yeah. Kind of Maybe the third movie, too, not the second one. Don't. I'll get to it, but don't. But Michael falls. But Michael's going to wake up in his yeah. bed. I love that he falls through the fog and thinks he's about to die and then just wakes up in his bed. <laughs> it's a great yeah. transition. I love that stuff. And this fog fall scene is another moment where we see the like low-budget workarounds because he is just flailing his arms through a fog machine yeah. and we get no depth perception we have nothing else but the fog in the frame sort of like they used on sleepy hollow right to cover yeah, up that's true what's happening in the background we're just going to use that fog and both of them are very much taking from this hammer horror tradition that that was a hammer horror thing of shooting on the cheap and so we're going to get a lot of resequencing here from the initial shooting script. And we mentioned oh, okay. that the the full day was cut already. So there's going to be this day of Michael working. But the mm-hmm. pacing of how Michael goes about getting to know the vampires is going to actually also be spread out over a couple of days in the original script ah, where okay. he sees them out of the corner of his eye or around as he's cleaning up these beaches. The day that he runs into Star looking to get his ear pierced is not actually going to be the same night as the bridge scene. So they condense that and they resequence it a little bit. And at some point, there's also going to be these deleted moments in which after Star says, like, don't get your ear pierced there. I can do it for you. She's actually physically going to do that. She's Oh, yeah. He has his ear pierced now, yeah. like after he wakes up, his ear is his pierced. His ear is totally pierced. So she's going to take him back. She's going to pierce his ear. There's going to be this like erotic moment with the blood where she's super into the blood. And then she's also going to tell him about why she ran away from home. It's okay. one of those things where she doesn't go too far into it. It's just like a little bit of a hint that like her family life was really troubled. She's a troubled teen. She ran away. 
And Mm -hmm. she also sets up this idea of the enticement of the Lost Boys and belonging and everything they stand for as this group of outsiders that take in runaways. This is then also going to be this callback to the homeless population, the predator-prey setup of the Reagan era. And I do kind of like this undercurrent. That's one thing I would have kept is this sort of recurring Mm. theme of the fact that they're just collecting these outcasts. And then there's also going to be a scene with Star and Laddie, the little boy vampire. Yeah. He had this dream and he comes and talks to Star about it, about this family. And she explains to him that these are memories of his family. And so there's this idea that's set up then that vampires' memories of their families and past lives slowly fade and soon just come only in sort of waves of dreams. And they separate themselves from society in this way more Mm -hmm. fully, that they just become something else. And it stabilizes this idea of the vampires as their own very specific family, this found family and collected family of choice that don't have any other family, whether or not it's because they ran away from it or they just chose this other path or they were taken into it like Michael was, that this is their family now because they actually don't even remember their old ones. Mm. So those were actually two very interesting scenes that I found contextualized a little bit more of the mythos and also built up a little bit more of the relationships between some of these characters. (sighs) But yeah, because in the movie, he's going to wake up. He's suddenly going to have his ear pierced. Pierced also in a way, and his hair is done in a way, but he's suddenly looking a lot like Rob Lowe in St. Elmo's Fire. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's a very specific choice. It's in the middle of the afternoon. He's wearing his sunglasses. His brother kind of bitches at him to get up. The mother has a date with Max. She's going to ask Michael to watch Sam. She hasn't Mm -hmm. been asked out to dinner in a very long time, and she wants to go. Newly divorced woman, DTF. I mean, you know how it goes. She wants to get out there again. Who can blame her? Now it's just Sam and Mike at home. Mike tries to drink some milk, but he suddenly gets really sick. Sam is taking a bath, and Michael is beginning to have an urge of some sort, so he heads up the stairs looking very evil. The dog just happens to be in the bathroom, too, and knocks Michael down the stairs so he can't get to Sam. It looked like he was going to do something to Sam. And meanwhile, Corey Haim is just singing his little heart out in a bathtub. <laughs> Corey Haim will and do. It's kind of endearing. But when he sees that something is awry, he gets out of the tub, runs downstairs to check on Michael, whose hand is bloodied from a very nasty bite from the nuke. And they stand up and Corey sees something and says, holy shit, man. They look into a mirror and Michael now has a half reflection. And it's clear something is going on because, you know, Sam, he's been reading about the vampire. So he knows, oh, shit, half reflection. You're a goddamn shit sucking vampire, man. You wait till mom hears, which always makes me laugh, that line. And Schumacher himself has said that this line of a kid accusing his brother of being a vampire and the next best threat that he has is wait until mom finds out is the essence of the movie. It's also it makes it work a little bit more for the queer reading, too, because we have this moment of the outing of Michael in terms of what he is and the initial, especially in the context of the 1980s, this shock and revulsion from his younger brother, which is this horrific moment for poor Michael, right, who is being rejected by his family member of this idea of like, you're a shit-sucking vampire, right? Like, I 
I can't wrap my head around this and like wait till I tell mom mm-hmm. right that the greatest threat here is yeah that the family Absolutely, might reject him. Yeah. That's a different type of horror. Mm-hmm. So it works on a different kind of horror level for, uh, for the queer readership. So many. And he after he accuses him of being the shit sucking uh, bloodsucker, goes into his room, checks in the comics, and he has to call the Frog Brothers, and they're like, "It's a good thing you called us. Go ahead and stake him." No, I don't want to stake him. So he has to either kill his brother or just wear a lot of garlic, which is apparently all that he can do, and. Michael is uh, now beginning to levitate against his own will. The effect to get Jason Patrick flying was like, one, when he's being pushed in the ceiling, his body is just on a crane that's pushing him upward. And then when we cut to the wide shots, he's strapped to the ceiling and kind of squirming around. And then when he finally goes outside, we get into like real good old fashioned wire work where he is just being hoisted by those invisible wires, invisible to the camera at any rate, by, you know, a wire crew. And I just... I love stuff like that. I love wire work in movies and seeing it done well. It's done limited here in this movie, but it's done really well when they do do it. So they played their hand right on that one. And he eventually does get back inside. Sam decides to help his brother out. Lucy gets home, like, freaking out, like, you were screaming bloody murder. What's going on? Oh, sorry, Mom. I was just really scared by a comic. It was just like... What the fuck, guys? Also, the spilled milk over here. Damn it all. She puts the carton of milk down and it has Laddie's face on it because he's a missing kid. He's a face on the milk carton. Grandpa gets back home. He's got a spring in his step, but Sam is going to bed. He asks his mom, Mom, can I sleep in bed with you? She's like, sure, fine. What's that weird smell? Oh, nothing. And he has a necklace of garlic all around his neck because vampires. Uh, Max is walking back home from the dates and is looking a little confused and the motorcycle gang seems to taunt him. So, again, we're just being led to believe that Max is just, he's just some guy who had a bad date and now vampires seem to be wanting to hang around him for reasons. Who can tell? Yeah, I do like with Max earlier in the video store when they like come into the video store and he just gives him a look. And just says, like, I told you not to come in here yeah. again. And it's this very interesting exchange of this almost, yeah, you get kind of almost a paternal, weird, creepy vibe of authority yeah, over and, these and they, kids. they leave, but they still seem to like give him attitude when they're leaving. So you could see the scenario of a father figure who's disappointed with his progeny what have you Mm -hmm. and wants to change that somehow and oh here is this very caring yet stern mother figure he could possibly use and exploit so yeah they do lay the seeds there fairly well so you can see this like looking at the whole picture uh, when he walks home and these guys taunt him as like yeah let's like fuck with dad ha 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 gonna be great and he's just like god Damn, these stupid-ass yeah, vampires. Yeah, because it's the few times they can act out because they're in public, so he can't actually like oh, exert yeah. any type of authority <laughs> over them in that moment. So they're like taking their opportunity well, to be like, yo, man. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, Mike is now going heading back to the lair and finds Star, and Star holds Mike, and she's like, I don't know how to help you, Michael. So they're just going to have sex instead, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and the script is just as uninterested in the sex as, like, the rest uh, of us. Yeah. He walks back to the house. Lucy is trying to taunt to him. He does not want to talk to her. You could probably read something on that, too, because she says, you know, Michael, whatever it is, we can talk. You know that, right? Yeah, Mom. Is it a girl? Like, I don't want to talk about it, and heads off. And I imagine that there could be a reading there, too, of, a, of maybe of a parent just trying to say, hey, mm-hmm. can I try to understand what you're going through here or something, you know? Yeah, she's like, something's up with you. I know 
Like, let's let's talk about it. And he's like, nah, you wouldn't understand. And his sunglasses are really askew. They generally are askew on his face, and it's really hard to take him seriously when he has these little askew, yeah, <laughs> sunglass, crooked stuff on his face. It's pretty great. He heads off in a huff, and Grandpa walks by and sees him coming home late and just says, Oh, guess I'm not the only one who got lucky last night. Like, oh, yeah, Grandpa. thank God. I was worried we would not know if Grandpa had sex with the Widow Johnson, but we now know Grandpa definitely had sex with the Widow Johnson. Good for him. See, that's, that's some hot sucks I can get behind. Like, I'm, I'm pulling for the grandpa. Sam is worried about his brother because his brother was supposed to go take care of this shit. This whole, like, I'm maybe a vampire yeah. stuff. And he clearly hasn't. And so he's got to go seek out the Frog again, Brothers. Again, we got to check him out. Yeah, again. And the Frog Brothers are like, just kill your brother. Yeah. You'll feel better. And it's like, you guys are great. They're the best part of this movie. <laughs> oh, another earlier queer reading when, like, the Frog Brothers are going to say, your brother's a vampire, and Sam is going to reply with, if my brother's a vampire, he's only half. And I was like, oh, okay, so he's bi then. Ah. Like that, that contextualizes, because it comes really close after he just got with Star, and so it kind of convolutes for a second, <laughs> this like queer reading of the narrative of like, Instead of it being this kind of moment of like fully rejecting his side, it just becomes more of this like he's half, right? He's he's maybe our bi character that's like straddling both worlds. Lucy is making food for Max because he's going to come over for dinner. Mike is heading out just as Max shows up and Max is like, you're the man of the house. I'm not going to come in until you invite me. You're invited. All right. Thank you. And this is a big part of vampire lore. Though the way it's done in this movie is a little bit different than how it normally seems to go. I mean, just like skipping ahead to like what this is, by being invited in, it seems that Max as a vampire is no longer vulnerable to garlic because he has a reflection and water doesn't hurt him. But typically in vampire lore, they can't enter the house at all unless they're invited in. And yet the vampires later on will break into the house without being invited in. So that just seems like it's a little different than what the normal we have to be invited in thing is. Played. Yeah, the lore is all over the place here. Like, some of them have reflections, some of them don't. Maybe he's like a master vampire, so he like retains all of his stuff. Like, I don't know. Uh, well, don't it know. makes sense that like maybe he has like a reflection now for the first time ever because you know this dinner happens. The boys try to feed him garlic, nothing happens. They spill water on him, nothing happens. They turn off the lights, turn them back on, but they have a mirror right in front of his face, and he sees a reflection, and he like really freaks out when he sees his reflection. Like, whoa, oh, geez, and. Maybe you can read that as, like, he doesn't see his own face very often. So when he does, it's like, whoa, God, that's what I look like. Fuck, I forgot. That's true. Yeah, that, like, kind of just shock or whatever that he, when he sees himself. He he knows what's yeah. up, but he pretends that he exactly. doesn't. Oh, I forgot. So, like, when he gets to dinner yeah. and... It's like, oh, is it bad luck for me to see the food before we eat it? Or like some comment about that. And then she's like, no, that's brides on their wedding day. And he's like, oh, I always get those two confused. And on the surface, it just seems like this. An attempt at humor that is like a little weird. This like, yeah, yeah, bride sort of thing. Like, oh, like, let's marry. But it's also kind of great because he's a vampire. And so... The marriage thing and the drinking of the food source thing is actually the same thing for him, which is why he always gets it confused. Uh, And that's super fun. (laughs) Oh, perfect. I like that. The trail is now cold because the boys are trying to figure out who is the head vampire and they think it's Max and they're right, but they're now like, okay, it's not Max. So fuck. 
that's dinner time. Now it's initiation time for Michael, you know, as given to us by David, because they take him to the beach and some surf Nazis are on the beach dancing to run DMC, you know, like, oh, God, Nazis in their run DMC. Uh, tired of that trope. Yeah, well, they clearly want him to walk this way. Right? <laughs> oh, it's the initiation path. Like, it's very on the oh. nose. Like, you just get this walk this way over and over again as David is like, hey, Michael, you need to come over here and you need to eat these guys. Yep. And the guys that they are going to eat are actually the culmination of the war with the surf Nazis. Because I haven't even brought up all of the times that the surf Nazis yeah. like pop in and out of like the novelization in the script. All that these guys are to the final cut of the movie is just the guys that stole comics from the store earlier in the film. Yeah, we don't really need to know who they're killing, but it is like specifically this group, this rival gang. So they get all vamped out. They're going to just tear them to pieces, right? There's going to be scalping. Yeah. There's going to be body parts ripped off. It's not the second sexiest way to eat someone necessarily well i mean that's that's subjective so it's not the traditionally the most sexy way to eat somebody but david does reveal his little vamp face bloodbath ensues and the effects yeah the effects are kind of awesome in how restrained the prosthetics on their faces are because they kind of build up their eyebrows uh, give them like a little bit more cheekbone and uh, chin but you still see Kiefer Sutherland through that very easily because he's not like underneath mountains and mountains of prosthetic. But I mean, I thought that was a really nice touch. And Joel Schumacher himself was very adamant on it. I looked up Greg Cannon, who the makeup guy behind this movie. That dude has worked on so many crazy different things. He's worked on Bram Stoker's Dracula, Titanic. And White Chicks were like the three most different movies I could see that he had been working on. So dude has been in the game for a long time. Yeah, he does have a range of stuff that he does. He also did get some personal tips from our buddy Dick Smith. Fucking love Dick Dick Smith. Smith. So they use the hard contacts that are very common in film effects they designed them themselves to have this glowy red vibe and then built the prosthetics out around the contacts. So the contacts were going to be the center of the visual aesthetic here. And you can get those printed on demand. You design them and then you kind of print them. Some of the old companies actually would like hand paint the contacts and stuff. Now you have, you know, computer digital printing onto contacts and it's a lot easier. But still largely in the industry, film contacts for special effects are a very hard material. Mm -hmm. They're bigger than your contacts. If you're contact lens wear, these are not those contacts. These are almost like those contacts that the dude in Beyond the Black Rainbow kind of like plucks out of his eye. Like the the size of them. Mm -hmm. And they are hard. They're heavy. They're covering the entire front of the eyeball, not just like kind of the iris and surrounding area, but like the yeah, whole they take up yeah half. the whole like white of the eye, and these are so uncomfortable, like notoriously uncomfortable. There are actors that will specifically decline movie roles if they know they're going to have to wear contacts in them. Good. Movies that require them like the 30 days of night cast with those like blackout eyes, their eyes will be in a lot of pain for a very long time. Mm. Like it's just, they're the worst guys. They're just like the worst things. 
later we'll actually even see Kiefer Sutherland, like David's face, like this close up of it in the cave when like the slaughter is happening. And like the single lone teardrop is just going to like run down mm-hmm. his like cheek. You think like, man, Kiefer's acting hard there, isn't he? Yeah, it's like that's super dramatic. Did they like put like a glycerin drop just so you'd have like this one lone tear? And it's like, no, actually what happened there? was that these contacts are so irritating that his eyes, like many actors' eyes, when they do this, were just watering and they were tearing up. And so that's an actual just sort of just watery tear from the contact lenses. And they're like, ah, it kind of works here with the emotion of the scene. We'll keep it in. But yeah, it's a painful job that they've got going on here. And then the teeth are going to be interesting too because they wanted to get away from those Dracula mm-hmm. type of big prosthetics across the board and so they're just going to have these two teeth caps that the wiring is going to run along the gum line in the roof of the mouth and come down and allow these two little teeth to just hook over the actor's two teeth they're actual canines yeah very heavy wiring to like stabilize those Mm, teeth so i could not imagine that this was like a comfortable thing for these actors to be in like it looks miserable they probably had to dub their lines again after each of these scenes like if they had those teeth in because you can't talk properly with those things just sounds garbled and like kind of lispy yeah i was noticing like the adr looper actually got a pretty like high up credit yeah on this film (laughs) you saved the movie you got a adr a lot in this thing what are you gonna do Uh, but yes, so they slaughter the surf Nazis. Michael has not fully gone vampire. His eyes are glowing a little bit, and he's like clearly struggling. And Kiefer, in an awesome shot, David and the boys like walk up the hill while the flames are going behind them, and he says, you will live forever, Michael. You'll never die, but you have to feed. And apparently Schumacher let his like inner Stanley Kubrick out for this scene because he says that he made Kiefer do this scene like a hundred times, walk up and say that feed line, and then ended up using the second take. Like, <laughs> Joel, I don't mean to tell you your business, but come on, man. Did you not have that the first few times? <laughs> like, why a hundred takes? This, this film shot in like three weeks, yeah. right? Like, like why, a hun- why we, that? We don't have time for this. <laughs> It's strange. But the Frog Boys come over the next day, and Michael tells them where the lair is, so they gear up. They take Grandpa's car while Grandpa is putting a bunch of giant wooden stakes in the ground. And they drive the hell off, and they get over to the lair. Michael does not want Sam to go down to the lair. They're like, no, we we have to all do this together. Frog Brothers, fine where the vampires are sleeping. And in a cool shift from, you know, vampires sleeping in coffins, instead the vampires are just hanging from the roof of this cave like bats. I love that effect. It's pretty fun. Yeah, they climb up. They stake Marco, played by Alex Winter. So no more Alex Winter in this movie. That's kind of sad. David wakes up and grabs Sam right before they can get to the sunlight, and the Frog Brothers are able to pull Sam out, and this is where the moment of that one lone tear comes down Kiefer's face, where his hand catches fire, he pulls back, and almost looks right at the camera, but not quite, and just goes, Tonight. Tonight. And that's when the tear comes down his face. It's such a badass thing. And apparently, like, (laughs) this image of his face, of Kiefer's face, was, like, on a book about movie vampires, and Joel Schumacher was incredibly proud of that. I have that book. Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was for years a source of immense joy and pride to Joel Schumacher that Kiefer Sutherland's face as this vampire was like the face of Hollywood vampires for years on end. And he was just so pleased with that. 
But the boys all get back into the car. They now have Star and Laddie with them. They drive the fuck off. They bring Star and Letty back. There's a great bit where Grandpa was like, do you know the rule about putting gas in the car? No. Well, now you do. <laughs> like, Yeah, we're not going to comment on the fact that like you're carrying this comatose woman and small child. Yeah, like he, that's, that's not of concern. But did you refill the car with gas? Which is why Grandpa is great. Grandpa's also very high. He's probably also holding another taxidermied animal because we haven't stressed enough how like every time you see Grandpa, he's like holding another taxidermied <laughs> animal. And at some point he even gives this like taxidermied beaver to little Sam and he's like here this is for you and he's like thanks man but the they decide okay we have to do something about this because in like when sundown hits these vampires are going to come after us uh, Sam tries to tell his mom at the video store like mom the vampires are after us uh, we're in trouble she doesn't believe him the frog brothers run into a church to get a lot of holy water and apparently they had to build a church set because they could not find a catholic church in all of California that would let them <laughs> just put thermoses into their holy water basins and to get to fill them up. That is crazy. I wonder if one of them would have let them just like put in a fake basin to fill up so they didn't have to build an entire <laughs> church, but oh, yeah. I don't Ridiculous. know. Ridiculous. But that is hilarious, like in terms of like no Sundown's coming, they trick grandpa into thinking he has another date with the widow Johnson. When it was grandpa's like, Whoa, I might get late again. I'm gonna get the hell out of here and he has heads off. Yeah, Grandpa, get it. They pour all of the holy water into the bathtub, mix in some garlic, you know, just get the good stuff going. They pour the holy water into the water guns. I just love that, like little squirt guns with holy water. That's that's like how 13-year-old me would fight vampires. Uh, that makes sense. I don't think 13-year-old me would fight a vampire. I think I'd be like, let's do this. Yeah, <laughs> been great. The sunset comes, they wake up, they're mad. Apparently, like, the whole thing of them leaving the cave, Joel forgot to film them waking up and leaving the cave, so he had to repurpose other takes from earlier. Yeah, I read that too, that it was like this composite shot of like just reversing that pull-out cliff shot. Well, anyway, yes, the vampires arrive at the house, battles ensue. Upstairs, the frog brothers are able to defeat one vampire by throwing him in the holy water bathtub, and he melts, and then apparently his blood just goes through all the plumbing in the house. It's a little crazy. Yeah, she gets nuts. It does like, good. The plumbing's just gonna explode, blood is just coming out of every faucet and every toilet and the physics they don't make sense the lore doesn't make sense but it's crazy so you go with it yeah another is killed when sam is able to shoot an arrow through his heart <laughs> through a poison arrow through my heart falls back against a stereo that begins sparks to fly out of this thing i think there's actually a deleted shot from way earlier in the film when sam is working on the stereo and it's like actually shooting some sparks out way earlier in the movie, so that may have been like a set for this, but it doesn't really need that. We just enjoy a vampire dying by exploding stereo equipment, and apparently the test audience loved this so much they were cheering and cheered over Sam's next line, Death by Stereo, <laughs> so Jules Schumacher had to like just insert a bunch of random like insert shots to pad out the death time that this guy was having so that people would actually hear Sam say death by stereo because you need that to punctuate the whole thing and if no one hears that it's super important to get that jab in there for sure (laughs) David is going to fight with Mike and they're going to throw each other around a little bit Mike just says you tried to make me a killer you are a killer Michael yeah once again like self-acceptance like I already see this in you just (laughs) accept it Upstairs, the boys have a confrontation with Laddie, who himself has now gone full, he has full vampire makeup on. 
Alan Frogs, after he sees the kid go full vampire, says, Oh my God, it's the attack of Eddie Munster! And, uh, I'm sorry, Eddie Munster was a werewolf? I mean... David continues to taunt Mike downstairs, and Mike goes full vampire. They fly at each other. They fight it out, and eventually Michael, I'm pretty sure that's his name, is able to overcome David and throws him against some antlers and completely stabs him through the chest. And that seems to do the job. I didn't know that antlers were a thing that could kill a vampire off, but, eh, you know, what do I know? Vampire lore, go figure. I mean, they're dying in bathtubs and by stereo. Yeah, death by stereo, it's true. They're really fucking up Grandpa's house, though. Like, this place is now flooded, like, the wiring is fucked, and now they are getting gore and viscera all over his cleaned bone antlers. Also, Grandpa has killed a fuck ton of deer. There are so many deer bones and carcasses in his little taxidermy room that it's astounding. But after all the carnage has settled down, Michael has not changed uh, back to human. He thought he would because they figured, okay, David has to be the head vampire because it wasn't Max because Max wasn't being affected by the garlic and the water and the mirror. So what's going on here? Well, Lucy and Max happen to arrive. And Max looks around at the carnage and just says, ah, Lucy, I'm really sorry about all this. My boys really got out of hand. And the reveal comes. Oh, snap. Max is the real vampire, is the real head vampire, and tells the boys, like, you shouldn't have invited me in. You're powerless if you invite a vampire into your house. And there's a moment... Except for apparently not, because he gets staked in a second, and that works just fine. But no one invited him in. He just walked in. Okay, so maybe that's it, is that vampires can enter houses at any time, but it's only, like, if they, yeah, enter the... By invitation, then they become an... Yeah, that, that's insane. the rule that I got from this movie. That's why I was saying before okay. that it seemed like a twist on the invite uh, aspect of vampire lore. And like I said, the other vampires break into the house, and they don't need to be invited in. Though, even if he had been invited in, a stake through the heart is a stake through the heart. It doesn't really matter if you're a vampire or a human, so would have killed him off either way. But yes, Max turns full vampire, throws everyone around, no one can fight him because he's the head vampire, and then Grandpa shows up with his giant wooden stakes and stops his truck short. The stakes fly through the window, straight through Max's heart, into the fireplace, kaboom! Head vampire, gone! One fun thing about Max's transformed makeup here is that the special effects artist, as a homage slash little inside joke, modeled Max's prosthetics in his transformed face after Joel Schumacher's face. There's something a little bit Ed Herman about the face, but there's also something very Joel Schumacher about the face. And Joel apparently, when he showed up in his little vamped out makeup and was watching the dailies, turned to Canon and said, Am I crazy or does Ed look like me? <laughs> and he was so excited by that because he's like, he does look like you. Actually, that was on purpose. A little so, scamp. <laughs> yeah, just a fun little like facial base that Joel did indeed pick up on. So it looked enough like him that Joel recognized himself oh, in the facial makeup. Nice. Well, so the head vampire is dead. Michael, I think that's his name. Star and Laddie are back to normal. Everything is fine. Grandpa gets off of his tractor, walks into the kitchen, opens the fridge, takes out a root beer. Everyone walks in like, oh my God, Grandpa, you did it. We're saved. Yep. One thing about living in Santa Carla I could never stomach. All the damn vampires. And that's the final line of the movie. Our characters, blood-soaked and in shock, stare at him. The lights fade down on him as Grandpa closes the refrigerator. 
credits. Yeah, first we get this silhouette shot oh. as the the fridge shuts and then the yes. light's going to fade. And then this jaunty people are strange people music are is going to strike back up when you're while the fade is still happening. Yep. And <laughs> because of that, it creates this punctuation moment of how aware this film is that we just watch something that is mimicking like the theater of the bazaar. Mm -hmm. Cause this is such a theater of the bazaar ending. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> this really strange tonal. Sh it's not a tonal shift completely because we've had this zany tone yeah. all along, but you know, it's just like, that's how they do in Peoria or like whatever kind of <laughs> ending where you're like the fuck it becomes so self-aware in that moment. This strange wink at the audience as the avant-garde music is fading in yeah and that's almost what in a way punctuates this film as a theater of cruelty piece this artifice of filmmaking because this film is so weirdly aware of mm. all of the shortcuts it's taking of its very zany shifts in tone and it's just gonna embrace the insanity of that full-fledged especially at the end yeah i think one of this movie's greatest strengths is how well it balances those tones because it is crossing genres and schumacher has said that that was one of the biggest problems with the executives at Warner Brothers when he was making this thing, they would see the dailies and they ask him, wait a minute, are you making a comedy or a horror? And he's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there is an original ending that was also cut. It's in the script. It was never filmed. They didn't get around to it and they didn't need it. And the original ending was going to be that the remaining Lost Boys are shown gathering in the sunken hotel lair under this portrait of Max ready to recoup and seek revenge. There are no more Lost Boys. All the Lost Boys we have seen get killed. Yeah, that we've seen, but they've been around for a while. Chances are they turn more yeah. than like three people. Yeah, you know, it's a big lair. I don't know. But yeah, they were going to assemble, ready to seek vengeance. I don't know. I do remember in the book, parts of the end as well, is that it does have this like epilogue where like Lucy finds a different job and Sam starts to learn taxidermy for like whatever reason. And Laddie goes home because he actually does have a home to go home to. One of the weirdest things was that Star goes to live with the widow Johnson. That's We don't odd. see that. It's just mentioned that yeah. she's going to go off and live with the widow Johnson because she doesn't have a family. And then Grandpa is going to also go near those caves, but he's going to issue a warning that these caves that the hotel is sunken into are presumably never ending. They're kind of this hellmouth, like these precursor to Buffy, like hellmouth feeling that nobody knows where the end is and great, strange, monstrous sounds can be heard from below. So it's important not to go there after dark. So yeah, I think the script is a little bit more clearly like that these vampires are gathering and the book gives more of a feeling that there's a whole horde of monstrous stuff that's still existing in the cave depths ready to rise up. Mm. And those are our two ins for sequels. Oh, sequels, you say? Sequels, I say. Well, London, let me tell you a little something about sequels that people really want, but then they're like, oh, we, did, we, we didn't want that, though. There was talk of sequels as soon as this movie came out because it did really good money on a very low budget, so when that happens, typically a sequel goes down. 
And there was a script, I think from 1990. I call this the script of dubious origin because every version of this thing that you can find online, it's not formatted like a screenplay. You picture a screenplay, you have your action, you have your dialogue in the middle of the page, and the font is Courier, Courier New, like looks like a typewriter. This script that you can find a PDF on multiple websites is all in Times New Roman. Everything is left aligned, and there's no title page to the script, so it doesn't give an author. So when I saw this at first, I thought, I don't know that this is a real thing. This might be a fan script. I can't really tell. Reading it, it, it seems like it's an actual script. It reads very well. The general plot of it is that it's a few years later, probably three years after the fact, so it's 1990. We're still in Santa Carla. Uh, we have Sam and the Frog Brothers. They're a few years older. They're, like, driving now. Aw, grow up so fast. And there's a new vampire gang. There is a lot of focus on these two new characters. They're Vanessa and Sarah Harker, and their mother's name is Mina Harker. I was going to say some more Dracula Yeah, so references. we have Lucy in the first movie, and now Mina. And Vanessa has the same story that Michael did in the first movie, where she meets these people and kind of starts to fall for a, a, a male vampire named Julian, and Julian more or less having the same story that Star did in the first movie. So it's kind of a repeat of the first thing, some gender swapped in there. And it's the same thing. They save the day. Turns out David survived the first movie because it was just antlers. And they even there's a line of dialogue where the Frog Brothers, they see David. They're like, wait a minute, we killed that guy. And Sarah, who's a spunky young kid, says, what, with a steak? They're like, well, wait, do antlers count? Does it count if it's antlers? Oh, I guess not. No. And the way that it's written, like you could really see Kiefer Sutherland's like looking awesome in this thing because we're back in the lair and the script just says like how sinister David is looking every step of the way. And the fun bits are like the Frog Brothers have retrofitted an old VW minibus. Like it has wooden stakes all over it and they have a trailer of water behind them. And on their way to the final confrontation, they stop at a Catholic church, bring a priest out and the priest like Nomini Patri does, a, does the cross on the entire tank of water. So now they have a whole tank of holy water. Battle ensues. They kill off all the vampires one by one, much like we did in the last one, except now the battle is at the lair. So the stakes, pardon the pun, are much are a little bit higher. They think the day is lost because the sunlight is coming and David is retreating into the deepest part of the caves until suddenly an explosion happens and the roof of the entire layer caves in. And it turns out it's Grandpa who has a bunch of dynamite that he's had throughout the movie. And he just, like, starts to swell up in a giant tornado of smoke and blows up into a million golden pieces. Wait, Grandpa blows up into a million no, pieces? No, no, uh, no, David does. He oh, dies okay. at the end, and he really is the head vampire this time. These new guys are his new brood that David has sired. So <laughs> instead of a twist of, like, who's the real head vampire, they actually think it's Grandpa at one point. The Frog Brothers are like, this guy is always doing taxidermy, and he's a lot of blood. What's his deal? Yeah, I also get the vibe in the original script for the Lost Boys movie that Grandpa's a little bit more of a suspect, that he's also potentially a contender for head vampire. Uh, yeah. Or supposed to be, because he's all eccentric, yeah, and taxidermy, and always doing weird stuff, like putting stakes around, and I don't know. Yeah. I never suspected him, though, yeah. in the first one. Also, how did David maintain his vampire status... Because, like, they killed Max, right? So shouldn't all his vampires... That's, or is it just the half-vampires? That is never explained. I, I, they okay. never bring that up. So maybe 
maybe David was not made by Max. Maybe he was made by someone else. But the movie, yeah, it ends with David's death, and everyone looks up at Grandpa through this gigantic hole in the lair now, looking out at the sun, and he just screams down, Is that all of them? Yeah, yeah, Grandpa, you got every single one of them. And the last line of the movie is, Good! Getting too damn old to stay up every night killing vampires. Fair enough. Not as good as the original ending line, but you know. But that's never happened. That sequel never happened, and it would be a little while before we got any sequels to The Lost Boys. We got a comic book in 2008. Yeah, so I'll talk about comic book real quick, because it is the tie-in novel leading into the tribe that we're going to get. So this is Lost Boys' Reign of Frogs from 2008, (laughs) and it does have the best title as far as the sequels go, because, like, that's just weird and strange. Reign of Frogs. And, yeah, it's the Frog Brothers, so, Mm. yeah, the Reign of Frogs. It is a four-issue comic tie-in to bring the original 1987 movie in with the tribe that's going to come out within that year. And in this comic, we have Edgar Frog, who's running his comic book store, and a young kid is going to come into the comic book store and say, hey, can you train me how to be a vampire hunter? And Edgar Frog's like, no, I'm not going to do that. He's like, well, then I'll go find your brother and he can train me instead. And Edgar gets really sad and serious and is like, okay, here's the deal. I'll tell you my story. And apparently, and this also, this comic book is taking place in 2007. And so Frog is older now. And he's like, okay, so... Through the 90s, my brother and I, we were we were vampire hunters for the White House because <laughs> presidents historically have been vampire hunters. Oh, Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. They recruited us to like hunt a bunch of vampires. So yeah, we're getting a little like Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter like thrown in here. <laughs> At some point, David shows up and David's like, guess what? Not dead. And he's like, uh, not so great to see you, man, because I thought you were dead and I kind of liked that you were dead. But the rest of us are like, fuck yeah, David, you're still alive. And David wants to know where Michael and Star are. And Edgar is going to tell them that Michael and Star died in a car wreck. We don't know if this is true or not, but we don't see them in the comics, so possibly this is their demise. And Edgar doesn't really care because he never really got to know Michael and Star that much, so like, not important to him. Sam is going to show up to help Edgar fights David, and there's going to be a little bit of a showdown and whatnot. Then at some point, it's going to turn out that the Widow Johnson, she's been an evil vampire this entire time. What? Yeah, and she's got this, like, dominatrix lair of just a bunch of female dominatrix vampires. Oh, Grandpa was getting lucky. And yeah, so Grandpa was having a great time when he was (laughs) going over to, like, the Widow Johnsons. And yet, they decide they need to fight these dominatrix vampires. Alan Frog, in the process of this, drinks some of the vampire blood, and he likes it. There's uh, actually even a line where like, Alan laments, like, I drank the blood, and I enjoyed it. We don't get a complete idea of what happened to Alan, but we're pretty sure like Dee's like a vampire now. Grandpa also turns out to be a vampire oh, the whole time. Okay. Well, technically, he is a half-vampire still, because he's been feeding on animals That's to stay the taxidermy. a half-vampire, okay. hence all the taxidermy. He had been turned by the widow at some point, which is why he did not revert back when Max was killed. Grandpa's going to get slain at some point. Sam is going to end up really traumatized by this. Back in the 2007 present, Edgar and the kid are attacked by a vampire as they're exiting the comic book store. And the kid is actually going to be the one who kills the vampire, not Edgar. 
And the kid's like, hey, I thought you were this great vampire hunter. Like, what's up? Why did I have to kill this thing? And then Edgar's going to reveal, like, well, I might have exaggerated, like, some of the story. Because, like, here's the deal. I... I didn't actually work for, like, the president in the 90s. <laughs> this, like, medal that I showed you came from Hot Topic. <laughs> so, And so it's ambiguous as to whether or not, like, Grandpa was actually there or not, or if Sam was actually there or not. So ambiguous in a way that's probably for the best. And the way that most of, like, it's all a dream or a fantasy or a lie can be rather frustrating. Mm-hmm. I think in this way, it's kind of important to remain ambiguous because then you do have this out. For the people who don't like the idea that Grandpa's a vampire, maybe he's not, because this is just Edgar Frog's account. You know, Edgar Frog is admitting that he's made a lot of this up, so which parts he's made up, we're not sure. But then we also get this flashback to the bonfire in 1987, that surf Nazi slaughter. Oh, damn. Poor surf Nazis. During that surf Nazi slaughter, there's one lone survivor. Oh. And that lone survivor is a young boy named Shane Powers. And he rises up out of this mass of bodies. And I guess apparently somehow in this process, he became a vampire by being fed on, but not dying. Or he already was one. But like, dude's a little vampire named Shane Powers. And he goes out into the ocean and like drinks a shark. So I think like he's probably just become a vampire after this massacre. And he's a little pissed because he's like, okay, so all my surf Nazi bros are dead. And I'm pretty upset by this. So I'm going to go start my own family like David has. I'm going to seek vengeance on David and my family. I'm going to call my family the tribe. Okay. And then we get the sequel, Lost Boys, the tribe. Uh, Go for it. Okay, this fucking movie. Uh, There are surfers in the start of that movie. None of them seem to be Nazis of any sort. Well, they're not actual Nazis. Surf Nazis. Surf Nazis. Which is apparently a totally different thing, especially in the context of 1987. These guys are they're fucking surfer dude bros. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, they seem to go so far in the other direction that the the brood from the first film had. These these vampires are all like asshole Fred Durst wannabes. It's just so annoying to watch. The general plot of the movie is that a brother and sister who I guess have just lost their mother move to some town that the name might be mentioned. I don't think it ever really is clearly, so I don't really know where they are. They end up going to a party that is being hosted by the head of these new Lost Boys, uh, who's played by Angus Sutherland, Kiefer's son, related to him somehow or another. Kiefer's half-brother, actually. Okay, well... Which is why in the film, he's going to even say that David is his half-brother. Oh, is he? And it's because, like, yeah, Angus is the half-brother of Kiefer Sutherland. They're both the son of Donald Sutherland. Everything is fucking worthless in this movie, and so is the dialogue, so I obviously didn't catch that. They play the Cry Sister song over the most tepid love scene I've ever seen in a movie. Corey Feldman uh, is there as Edgar Frog, who wants to tell the, the main male character in this movie, hey man, your sister's a vampire, we gotta do something about that. What do we do? We gotta go kill the main vampire it goes on they kill the main vampire and it really is the main vampire there's no twist it god everything of that was great about the lost boys is absent here we instead of beautiful cinematography and the awesome set design it's like just flat lighting rented houses with sets that had no set decoration done to them whatsoever all the the scenes are just gray and brown 
Nothing looks well motivated. It is, I've never checked my clock so many times when watching a film as I was when I was watching this. There are some things, a few moments that made me laugh. There's a bit where the vampires are at a party and they have a running gag where they just stab each other in the stomach for fun and one of them like is picking up his entrails and he's like yelling at his friend like dude that's a dick move man i was gonna get laid tonight now i got my fucking guts hanging out dick move bro like huh okay that's okay okay fine fair enough the thing ends with this mid-credit sequence that involves Corey feldman and suddenly sam shows up and he walks into frame and he's a vampire now Edgar's like, you're a vampire. There's no going back from that. Oh, I'm a vampire now. So I guess we're doing this? Yeah, yeah, we're doing this. And before they can do anything, the movie ends. So, fuck it. Hold on, there is something that needs to be said about the tribe, though. Say it. Say it loud. Say it proud. This tribe screenplay, why I think it feels like it doesn't quite fit, is because it was an original screenplay Mm -hmm. to begin with. The Tribe started out as a screenplay that was pitched a few years prior as a werewolf surfer movie. And it had been turned down because it had too many similarities to Lost Boys. Oh. <laughs> so it got shelved. And oh. then later, they're like, hey, let's pull out this surfer werewolf movie and let's just rework it as the Lost Boys sequel and we'll just kind of make them vampires and they got the original scriptwriter of The Tribe to come back and turn it into Lost Boys The Tribe but yeah it was never initially meant <laughs> to be a sequel which is kind of interesting yeah. and the thing that's baffling about this is that was the highest selling Warner premiere DVD of 2008 it covered the five million dollar production cost in the first three weeks So three weeks into the sales of this DVD, it had already made up its budget. And so Warner Brothers greenlit a third one. And then this movie would sell over a million copies. Pretty good business. Yeah. Which set a direct-to-video sale record. Wow. So this movie broke the direct-to-video sale records. And yet it has a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and nobody likes it, which is crazy. Yeah. But... It's good that it did so well because it did make a third movie happen. Lost Boys, The Thirst. This is an actual movie, I would say. (laughs) I think what's so much better about this is that it understands a sequel should include the things that we like the most about the first movie. The Lost Boys, The Thirst, Edgar Frog is the main character. So we have Corey Feldman back and he's playing to his strengths. He's doing really well in the role, and it's giving us good callbacks to the original movie. I mentioned how that copy of Batman 14 comes into play. At one point early in the film, Edgar Frog is hard up for cash, so he goes to a comic book store to try and sell off some comics, and the guy says, oh, I can only give you like 50 bucks for all of these, unless you want to part with this copy of Batman 14, and it's the legit, uh, like, it's the got the right cover, like, recreated on this prop, comic book that is the real Batman 14 uh, cover, and he says no, no. So not the E-series yeah. volume 26, right. 14, but just the volume just 114 the, Batman, Just the right? volume 14 one, yeah. Which in like t- 2010 would have been worth nearly $4,000. And he says, no, no, I can't. It's got sentimental value. And he holds on to it. And later on we find out that Alan, he's a vampire underground hiding away from everybody. Edgar is approached by this 
woman who wants him to help her recover her brother who has been kidnapped by a vampire cult and is going to be used as a sacrifice to help create more a new vampire army. And what's funny is that Edgar doesn't want to do it because he hates this woman because she's a novelist. And he says, yeah, I know who you are. You wrote those eternal romance novels, three of them about to be made into a movie. They suck. Well, really? What's so bad about them? Because you make being a vampire look erotic. There's nothing erotic about being a vampire. So this is clearly meant to be like a Twilight, like, ripoff type of thing here. I'm like, okay. Very... Oh, Twilight. And yet, there's everything erotic about being a vampire, <laughs> according to the Lost Boys. So, yeah, yeah, it really does there. Flawed logics. I won't say that it's a good movie. It's It looks a lot better than The Tribe does. It still cannot be compared in any way to the first movie. But the third Lost Boys movie, it's fun. And I think it's great fan service. And Corey Feldman is, he's doing really good. And it's great to see him in the role. It's an enjoyable sequel. I think if you watch the two of them back to back, it'll be pretty fun. But that's The Thirst. That is The Thirst from 2010. And then a comic book happened in 2016. A simple six-issue thing. The general story is that it's the year after the events of the first film. All the characters are back, and we have these new female vampires called the Blood Bells, and they are trying to track down Star, who apparently is their long-lost sister. And there are a lot of uh, crazy elements from it. I mentioned earlier, Grandpa is actually a vampire hunter, as is the saxophonist. Uh, from the first movie, <laughs> which I'm like, yeah. Actually, the beginning of The Tribe scared the crap out of me because when we get that first town, we have a lot of insert shots like we did at the beginning of the first movie. And in this one shot, there's this overweight, shirtless guy playing the saxophone. And for a split second, I thought, oh, no, no, Tommy, please tell me, man. Tell me this didn't happen to you. No, no, it's not. That's not Tommy Capella. It's Come back just, to me, man. Just some, it's just some shirtless, overweight guy Different with a saxophone they threw yeah. in his... A... So you're like, this is true horror. It's yeah. my beach muscle crushed, grizzled. That's true, yeah. This is the allure of the Lost Boys. They don't age. Uh, the last thing I saw that was Lost Boys related was a TV show that they've been trying to make happen. And I hope they do, and I hope they stick to the original concept I read, because what I read was they wanted to do like an anthology style, sort of like American Horror Story, but each season, and they like planned seven mm-hmm. seasons of this thing, each season is covering a decade in the life of these vampires in and around San Francisco, and is like really going into examining what it is to be immortal. So, like, the first season is the summer of love in San Francisco in the 60s, and the next is in the 70s, and the next in the 80s, and so on. That'd be really cool. Yeah, that would be awesome to see. And they apparently have filmed a pilot to it. It's just waiting to get picked up. So it might still happen. And <laughs> I hope that, no, that that would be awesome. That concept sounds like... really awesome. I hope they, they're able to get that. But, uh, but who knows? Who knows? Top five. My honorable mention will go out to the cast in general, uh, because I don't have many cast members in my top five. My number five is Kiefer Sutherland, because uh, I really loved everything he was doing with this. He didn't have that many lines. When you look at line count comparison to the rest of the cast, he doesn't have all that much to say, but mm-hmm. his face acting, all the acting he is doing here is just great. The sexual energy, whether or not it was intended that he gives out towards the other characters, is just so electrifying to watch that I absolutely loved it. 
Yeah, I also honorably will mention the cast because same, like there just wasn't room yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. And also the music, honorable mention, especially oh, yeah. the one little song <laughs> that just keeps getting refrained and repeated over and over and over again. The songwriter of that, he does a lot of songs for movies. That's like his deal is he just kind of writes these songs for movies. Apparently didn't watch The Lost Boys before writing the song, just kind of got the pitch script and like wrote the song. <laughs> it becomes the song of this movie. My number five, however, goes out to The Two Corys. Oh, <laughs> so The Corys. This is the yeah. genesis of The Two Corys. I was not quite old enough during like the two Corey phenomenon to really follow the two Corys <laughs> at the time. But yeah. I do see now that there is this really endearing quality to both of them in this movie. They both commit in very different ways. And Edgar Frog remains like the best character in this film. And Corey Feldman talked about that too in an interview where like when he's creating the Sylvester Stallone wannabe character, that the great thing about this character is the character is not in on the joke, right? The character takes himself so seriously, and there's something so hilarious uh, about that. Yeah, man, it's just these little G.I. Joes. How bitter do you think Jameson Newlander was during the height of the Corys? Just like, oh, I was in the thing with them too. too. Yeah, he just didn't quite have the charisma that the chorus did, you know? Uh, he is he's in the third movie and he's used really well in there, so I think I got a send off there. Oh good. Who's your number four? My number four is Greg Cannon, the makeup artist, the man who made all those vampire face effects happen. He worked really well with Joel Schumacher on making the effect subtle enough that our actors are never lost behind that stuff. And we're still able to see them fully, but yet transformed in a very, not horrific way, but just like a startling way in a way that is distinctly a vampire, but walking that line. And I guess it should be like a shared number four with the makeup artists and the actors that were put into that makeup because (laughs) my God, that had to be so hard to do. I, I cannot imagine. Yeah, my number four goes out to the DP, Michael Chapman. Yeah. Michael Chapman had been a cinematographer for a while in the industry and had recently left being a cinematographer to go try his hand at directing. I think his first directorial effort was All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise. And so he was was doing some directing stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Joel Schumacher asked him to come and do the cinematography on this film, and he jumped right on it because he wanted to do a vampire film. The vampire film was the selling point for him. Uh, yeah. And he did have a lot of fun with it. Like, the lighting Mm. in this film is... It's great. He lights it well. There's going to be some interesting red lights, like infrared stuff kind of going on. Ooh, I love that. Like magenta light, too, in some scenes. It's like magenta light, man. You get me going with that magenta light. That's the stuff you were saying. This movie is lit in very interesting ways to circumvent a lot of the budget restrictions. And so, yeah, it's very successful in that way. Who is your number three? My number three is Bo Welch, the production designer behind this film. And I think I came to appreciate him a lot more as I was watching the sequels. I mean, in the case of The Tribe, like, no production design whatsoever. The thirst, a little bit better, but still not that much. But Bo Welch, he dressed up so many sets so beautifully. I think this ties in with, like, my best thing about this movie is that, like, it's just such a sexy fucking film. I wanted to live in each of these spaces. And I think that's, like, a great small way of saying, like, the production design of the movie is fantastic. But, like, when you just want to be in all of these spaces... 
at any given point. Just jump to the screen and like land on that couch, go into that underground lair, or go to that beachfront concert where Tommy Capella is on the saxophone and god damn that. Or that taxidermy room where there's just animal carcasses everywhere. I mean, to each their own, but I mean, whatever no, gets I mean, you going. It was, a, it was a creepy room, but it was great. There was just so many animal bones. It was insane. <laughs> just, I couldn't get over how many deer carcasses were in that but, room. But none of that happens without a great production designer, and Bo Welch uh, was that. So my props to him for getting this movie going in such a great way. The production was great on this. It usually is on Jill Schumacher films. Yes. But still, Your my number, number three. three is going to be... The effects. Okay, yeah, yeah. That whole situation. Greg Hannum and then also the rest of the department. Mostly just because the iconic look that they managed to create on this film is going to influence so much of vampire cinema from here on out. And that deserves its own big shout out that they created a look that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is going to use very, very happily (laughs) and this concept of kind of vamping out and just even this idea of blending in with society that they could look completely human, they can look like Max, right, and just blend and then they have this dual face and that's a very cool concept in vampire cinema, so... They had a hand in that. They had a hand in changing vampire cinema effects history. So, cool. Who's your number two? My number two is Michael Chapman, our cinematographer. You know, given that I do a lot of camera work myself and love to light things in whatever beautiful way is possible, I was in love with the lighting in this movie. The movies he'd worked on prior to this, it's shocking. You would not think this is like the career path a guy would take because he did... Taxi Driver and Raging Bull with Martin Scorsese before taking a few years off he did direct a, a movie he said at some point like every cinematographer should direct one movie get it out of your system man you know see if you want to do it it's it's yeah. important and to want to jump into a teenage vampire movie I love that attitude that's just great like yeah uh, hey there guy who lit the most beautiful and intense movies of the 1970s and early 80s. You want to do this teenage vampire movie? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's hop on that, man. Vampires? Yes, I'm in. Kind of like Ed Herman, right? Like vampires, you say? Like, yes, let's do this. Let's do some vampires, man. Especially since, like, the vampire genre hadn't been overdone yet. That's we true, really yeah. hadn't gotten many vampire films yeah. up until this. It's just, yeah, these artsier ones. Like, when... Werner Herzog, right, is like doing the main known vampire film at the time, yeah. then you know, like it's not and yet a saturated market. I love his attitude on all the behind the scenes footage. The behind the scenes are really fascinating because it's like competing compliments, which you know, the behind the scenes stuff is more or less, you know, EPK, electronic promo kit material, but it's still like fun to see these guys. Uh, like Greg Cannon say, the way that Michael was able to shoot my effects, it's just absolutely amazing. I, I can't believe it got to look that good. Cut to Michael saying, well, the the, the trick to, uh, to filming effects well and filming makeup well is to have really good effects and makeup. So that's like what Greg was doing. So it's like, Aww, this oh, is you, sweet. you guys, you're just great. Oh, I also forgot to mention. So with the effects, yeah. with the blood in these effects... They packed in a bunch of glitter into the blood, which I is was why it's so shiny if I was and sparkly. Glitter, sparkling. And 
that's action. a super fun little thing. And yeah, apparently huh. the blood on the set was very slimy. And you can kind of oh, tell God. in the way that it runs. And a lot of that was the glitter that they put into it so that it would sparkle and shine strangely and reflexively on screen. So that's really cool, too. You're number two. My number two is the costumer. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Yes. The costumes on this are so cool. The mm. costumes, yeah, are perfect to the characters. We've got Corey Hames slash Sam's little fashion victim outfits that are just nuts. And looking back on it, it's kind of hard sometimes to notice just how out of place they are because it just looks like the 80s, right? And everything looks a little crazy in the 80s. But time period wise in context, <laughs> like those outfits yeah. were like crazy. And to then really have this look for the Lost Boys that still looks just very cool, right? There is something that's very timeless about the leather and the canvas and stuff that are integrated into their wardrobes. So costuming in this really shines. It informs the movie in ways that costuming doesn't always so heavily inform the characters in the movies. So she gets her own shout out. All right. Our number one is probably the same guy. It's the man who made the magic happen. I, of course, am talking about Tommy Capella. God damn it, you glistening <laughs> god of music. Sure. Oh, holy shit, man. This guy is amazing. Was that I won't not take that away one? from you. Was that not your number one, though? No, obviously no, not. No, of course not. No, our, number, our real Schumacher, number one, Joel on. Schumacher. I've really, I've often not gotten the derision that Joel Schumacher has received. Uh, I mean, I think like he always had that stigma from Batman and Robin, and I, I fell into that a lot back in the day, too. I think Batman and Robin always got a lot of hate because people had an idea of what they wanted Batman to be and to know that that was the only version of Batman they were getting at the time that rubbed people the wrong way. I think now that we have like the Nolan trilogy and you know uh, the Zack Snyder stuff, it's fun to I I look back on Batman and Robin. I kind of enjoy it, and I kind of came to appreciate Joel Schumacher when I listened to his commentary to that movie. If you can, for those listening, if you can find that, even if you don't like Batman and Robin the movie, listen to Joel Schumacher's commentary to that because he comes off really well. And he's like, if you like a movie, you have so many people that you can think. If you don't like the movie, you blame one guy, the director, and that's me. I am responsible for this movie, and I take whatever. Mm -hmm. you know, blame that needs to be taken. And he's like really defensive of his cast. So he really endeared himself to me in that and listening to his commentary here. It's so fun to listen to him gushing his actors. And he seems endlessly appreciative of the career that he has and of the fun that he's able to make for people. And he's endlessly happy that people enjoy this movie as much as they have and as for as long as they have and it's just so delightful to learn more about a guy who enjoyed what he did as much as Joel Schumacher did and the choices that he made in the the movies that he chose to bring to the screen I, I appreciate more and more so that's uh, Joel Schumacher man number one all the way yeah he's just endlessly endearing to me yeah a lot of the things I said on 8mm still stand true here. Absolutely, I yeah. was so grateful growing up that he was this out director and that was just awesome and that he has always yeah, been this very joyous figure in filmmaking that, as you mentioned, like he's so happy to just be making mm -hmm. movies and that comes through in his stuff. Like His movies have a very distinct just Joel Schumacher vibe. He loves those weird derelict places. 
He loves those weird camera angles. He loves this mixture of very muted tones with neon. Like none of his films are neon day glow, but there's so many vibrant colors I associate mm. with his films, yeah. but always set against the backdrop of like dirt and concrete. So it's yeah. a very cool blend. And he just cares so much. There was a quote that I found from him when he was being interviewed about this movie yeah, 17 I, years later. And what, it was just let's, so let's perfectly Joel Schumacher. And he's just like, I'm just so proud of it. I can't believe that I'm even sitting here talking about it. It was my fourth film. It's an enormous privilege to make films. Even if you've entertained people with even just one of your films, it's really fantastic. Because I love movies. And when I go to the movies and feel satisfied, you know, I'm so happy. And if this film didn't disappoint people when they went to see it or watch it on DVD or something, then I'm just thrilled because we did it to entertain them. You know, it's not a deep personal Joel Schumacher film. I don't know if anyone wants to see that anyway, <laughs> but we all put as much of ourselves in it. But it is a teenage vampire movie. And if someone got a kick out of it, then I'm really honored, you know? And I was like, oh my God, Joel. <laughs> like, oh. I, I fucking love you. Like, first of all, Joel, I do want a deep personal Joel Schumacher yeah. film. And because, like, you're fabulous. And yeah, I just love this idea of, like, yeah, I mean, it's a teenage vampire movie. We had fun with it. Like, movies are about entertainment. And that just, like, philosophy he has that movies are about entertainment. And this film does not have to be some great artistic masterpiece as long as it entertains. Mm. Like that's what we set out to do. I, I definitely appreciate that a lot. And like Joel Schumacher, he came off as a born entertainer, a man who just wanted to just put something sexy on the screen in the most beautiful, most gorgeous way possible. And yeah, I absolutely love that about him. And Honestly, I kind of hate the fact that he had so much flack from just a couple of his films. Uh, Batman, Robin, he got a lot of shit on. And, you know, people said that the Phantom of the Opera movie was really stupid. And I mean, I don't know how that you do a Phantom of the Opera movie correct. But I mean, even then, he did an interview where he was talking about being selected as the director of Phantom of the Opera. And he said, well, I would say that uh, Andrew over there just kind of picked me out of the choir to do this film. I'm like, oh, you cheeky motherfucker. I love you. Yeah, he actually picked him to do Phantom of the Opera because of Lost Boys. Because okay. he saw Lost Boys, was a yeah. fan of Lost Boys, and liked mm -hmm. how Joel Schumacher incorporated the music in Lost Boys in ways that informed the scene. And so Lost Boys is actually what got him the job on Phantom of the Opera. Very but, nice. Yeah, there seems to be this conflation I've seen, especially back around the Batman days where people would kind of just stuff Joel Schumacher in with like Michael Bay like they kind of had this like idea that somehow they were similar mm. sensibilities and I'm like no. how do we get Absolutely there not. Like, no. there's a time and place for Michael Bay as well but you've got this like very aggressively heteronormative oh God, yeah. director of like big budget action films and then you've got this amazing like outsider counterculture gay director who like generally works with really low budgets yeah. and i'm like how how do we complete these two guys people like i don't know i don't understand but yeah I, i've never understood the the hate for joel schumacher uh, that yeah. he's occasionally gotten or the brush mm -hmm. off it's undeserved yeah. he was a wonderful wonderful dude absolutely I will oh. also say quick honorable mention to the novelization, actually, of this really? movie. Okay. 
and Craig Shaw Gardner because it's a really enjoyable novelization and it did add like some context to like the fabula of this story. I already liked The Lost Boys, but I actually appreciated it on a deeper level after reading the novelization. So it's a hard novel to find. It's kind of out of print. It goes for a lot of money, but you can find like, you know, uploaded copies on fan sites generally if you search for it. So I, I'd recommend it. It's a, it's a cool, cool contextual read. <sighs> well, London... That was one hell of a journey uh, from Lost Boys, but I think it's time that you remind me what the hell our safe word is, because I forgot it. I know, it's been so long. <laughs> yeah, it is unfortunately time to leave the wondrous, balmy breezes of the dreamlike landscape of the West Coast and return to trademark New England. Toys are us, kid. There's a million toys at Toys R Us that I could play with. From bikes and trains to video games. It was the biggest toy store there is. I don't want to grow up. Because if I did, I wouldn't be. escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!